Good evening and welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are broadcasting from 12 years ago, uh, a uh, an episode featuring uh, Rafael Jesus Gonzalez and Carla Brundage, two wonderful poets and uh, activists here in the San Francisco Bay Area, East Bay specifically, um, who are reflecting on uh, the holiday known as Thanksgiving, um, a day that historically um, there was a lot of bloodshed um, that particular day, um, also known as Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh, they share poetry and thoughts and stories, and it's really a wonderful episode. So I am rebroadcasting that. And then I'm going to um, broadcast another another program from the archives. We're going to start off with the first hour featuring Rafael Jesus Gonzalez and Carla Brundage talking about Thanksgiving. Enjoy. And uh, we're going to be talking about what it means to be indigenous today. And I want to introduce our guest, uh, Rafael. Um, he was born October 10th and raised in a bicultural, bilingual environment in El Paso, Texas, United States. Um, Let's see, United States, uh, Juarez, uh, Chachilla, Mexico, with a family on both sides of the Rio Grande. Just graduated. Um, he graduated from El Paso High School and then joined the U.S. Navy in the Hospital Corps and served in the Marine Corps with the rank of Staff Sergeant. At the end of his military service, uh, Rafael attended the University of Texas, El Paso, then Texas Western College of the University of Texas in pre-med, taking some time to attend the Universidad Nacional Autonoma de Mexico, where he studied archaeology and Mexican literature. Uh, during this time, he published his first poems and academic articles in English and Spanish. On receiving the bachelor's degree, he decided to dedicate himself to literary studies, which he did under a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and National Education Act Fellowship. He did his graduate studies at the University of Oregon. As a professor of literature and creative writing, which is where I met him, at Laney College, he is uh, taught at the University of Oregon, Western State College of Colorado, Central Washington State University, University of Texas, El Paso, as a visiting professor of philosophy, and at Laney College, Oakland, California, where he founded the Department of Mexicano, Mexican and Latino American Studies. He has also taught in the public elementary and high schools under the Poets in the Classroom program. His poetry and academic articles appear in reviews and anthologies in the United States, Mexico, and abroad. His collection of poems, um, El Hacid, El Hacedor, uh, <laughs> De Huecos, The Maker of Games, published by Casa Editorial San Francisco in 1977-78, went through two editions. Um, Rafael Jesus Gonzalez has been nominated three times for a Pushcart Prize. But maybe the fourth time you'll get it. He is also a visual artist <laughs> whose work has been exhibited in various venues such as Oakland Museum of California, the Mexican Museum of San Francisco, Galleria de la Raza, the Charles Ellis Museum of Art in Milwaukee, and others in Mexico and abroad. And this past weekend, on Sunday, he was one of the featured poets um, at Rebecca's Books, um, uh, a reading hosted uh, I think every second Sunday and fourth Sunday by Avacha. And 
And uh, who's the young man? Other young man who who hosts with her, Eric. Eric Aviles. Right, right. So welcome, welcome. Um, I sometimes Thank you, you know. <laughs> Thanks for getting up early to come on my show to talk about you know uh, tomorrow, which is you know not celebrated by quite a few people in in our community, and uh, talk about what it means to be indigenous and share some of your wonderful poetry. Well, thank you. You're very kind to have me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we are, yes, on the day before uh, the national holiday of Thanksgiving, which uh, uh, I must say is my favorite of the American holidays. Although uh, it is laden with quite a bit of myth, actually, and much of it quite quite misleading, Um it is true that uh, the uh, first uh, English settlers in North America who founded Jamestown uh, in the area that we now call Massachusetts, around that around that area, uh, in around 1609 uh, uh, they came, and that first year in 1610. Uh, they did suffer quite uh, quite a horrendous winter with uh, with not enough food, and um, as history would have it, uh, uh, a member of the um, of the Iroquois Nations Federation of Nations of the of the Indians of the area by the name of Desquanti, uh which came to be called Squanto, uh, did save them. From starvation, um, uh, it's interesting that Squanto himself uh, had been to England 15 years before the uh, uh, the so-called pilgrims uh, 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 landed in the in the in the Americas. So he spoke English, and um, and he did, uh, of course, uh, uh, feed. Uh, or had his tribe uh, feed the early settlers and save them from uh, from starvation, but um, that seems to be true enough. Uh, but it's very interesting to note that the first Thanksgiving proclamation uh, was in June twentieth, sixteen seventy six, and that proclamation is. Uh, declaring a Thanksgiving Day to celebrate the massacre of 700 uh, of the tribe members of the tribe of of Squantos, uh, so that it was a celebration of a victory, or rather, it was a massacre of uh, of of the Indians. We tend to think of the pilgrims in rather reverent tones, but uh, that is, uh, in, and saying that they came here for religious freedom, uh, which has some grain of truth in it. Actually, they were. Uh, hello, hello. I'm here. Yes, okay. <laughs> there was a beep there. Anyway, um, a, they came here to institute their own brand of intolerance. <laughs> they tried to topple the uh, the government of England, uh, 
years, and they were the pretty pretty intolerant. I would say that they were the forerunners of the fundamentalists that we still have to put up with today. So, <laughs> so thinking, having said that and getting that out of the way, uh, it doesn't uh, it, it make the holiday any less significant. We certainly have to be thankful. We have to be thankful for life. We have to be thankful for the very form of existence, as my good friend Matthew Fox has always uh, gone to say, we have to celebrate original blessing. So with that, I will share with you my, uh, uh, my celebration of the day. Uh, as you have said, I write in both English and Spanish, and they come to me simultaneously, having grown up bilingual. Gracias. Gracias y bendito sean el sol y la tierra por este pan y este vino, esta fruta, esta carne, esta sal, este alimento. Gracias y bendiciones a quienes lo preparan, lo sirven. Gracias y bendiciones a quienes lo comparten y también a los ausentes y a los difuntos. Gracias y bendiciones a quienes lo traen, que no les falte, a quienes lo siembran y cultivan, lo cosechan y lo recogen, que no les falte. Gracias y bendiciones a los que trabajan, y bendiciones a los que no puedan, que no les falte. Su hambre hace agrio el vino, y le roba el gusto a la sal. Gracias por el sustento y la fuerza para nuestro bailar y nuestro labor, por la justicia y la paz. Grace. Thanks and blessing be to the sun and the earth for this bread and this wine, this fruit, this meat, this salt, this food. Thanks be and blessing to them who prepare it, who serve it. Thanks and blessing to them who share it, and also the absent and the dead. Thanks and blessing to them who bring it, may they not want. To them who plant and tend it, Harvest and gather it, may they not want. Thanks and blessing to them who work, and blessing to them who cannot, may they not want. For their hunger sours the wine and rubs the salt of its taste. Thanks be for the sustenance and strength for our dance and the work of justice, of peace. Yeah. So there. Yeah, thank My you. thanks to, to the earth who so, sustains us. Yeah. Well, it's too bad that our audience can't um, experience the sage that you probably burned this morning before you came on the air to clear the space and get the energy right like you did at the reading on Sunday. 
but we can we can smell it in our imagination and see the the wasting <laughs> smoke in our imaginations. <laughs> um, we were talking uh, about um, sort of what it means to be indigenous, and um, and and we talked a bit about the UN um, resolution, and and I, I did find it online. Um, it was up. See, it was dated um, September 14, 2007. The UN uh, General Assembly adopts the declaration, um, dec- adopts its declaration last year, and it says, with an overwhelming majority of 143 votes in favor of the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, only four negative votes cast, and those votes were from Canada, just as you said, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Um, and 11 abstentions, the United Nations General Assembly uh, adopted the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People on September 13, 2007. The Declaration has been negotiated through more than 20 years. That's a long time between nation states and Indigenous peoples. Um, Les Malazar, or Les Malazar, Chair of the International Indigenous Peoples Caucus, welcomed the adoption of the Declaration and a statement to the General Assembly. He said that um, the Declaration does not represent solely the viewpoint of the United Nations, nor does it represent solely the viewpoint of the Indigenous Peoples. It is a Declaration which combines our views and interests, which sets the framework for the future. It is a tool for peace and justice based on based upon mutual recognition and mutual respect. And um, I don't know if our audience has ever um, read the Declaration. Are you are you aware of the, the content of the Declaration? It's a, it's a very general declaration mm-hmm. uh, recognizing the rights of the indigenous people. Uh, yes, I have read it. It's, uh, it's rather long, but it's essentially that. It just... Mm-hmm. Uh, it recognizes the rights of the of the indigenous people specifically, as in, as the United Nations has uh, recognized the rights of everyone. And uh, you mentioned that 20 years is a long time. It's actually a very very short time when you consider that it has taken us more than 500 years to recognize the rights of the indigenous people who have suffered a continuous colonization process since the Americas were, uh, quote, discovered, unquote, by um, Columbus stumbling upon his shores in 1492. Mm-hmm. So um, it uh, it took more than 500 years to recognize the rights, and the rights are still not recognized by the United States and other uh, English-speaking countries around the world. Mm-hmm. The indigenous people are still battling for their rights in Colombia, in uh, in Bolivia, well, everywhere, in the United States, in Canada, New Zealand, everywhere. The uh, uh, the the struggle for for the rights of the uh, of the native peoples uh, goes on and on and on. You know, uh, the struggle for justice is a is a continuing one. Uh, in our own shores, uh, is, that struggle is seen in in many ways. Let me share with you a poem that I wrote 
to Cesar Chavez, who was the founder of the farm labor movement. Um, so was, he co was, was he co-founder? Um, Dolores Huerta was, I thought they co-founded it. Yes, indeed. Okay. Yes. Yes, Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, and Dolores Huerta are the, are the founders of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, you see them as the founders, but of course, it was it was a, a group effort. Okay. Um, a fines de abril, a fines de abril, las viñas ya verdes de brotos, llegó la muerte al campesino, al César de las uvas vestidas de azul, de las cebollas de fondos blancos, de las manzanas de vestiduras rojas. Le dijo, ven, César, y se lo llevó de las uvas envenenadas, las sandías, los melones llenos de mal, de las batallas de los surcos, de las emboscadas de las acequias, del estandarte guadalupano, de la bandera roja y negra. Pero en los surcos su voz dejó sembrado, su anhelo por justicia, es decir, reclamar el pan para el hambre, el alivio para el enfermo, los libros para el ausente. Su voz dará fruto, y habrá regocijo en los surcos, en las acequias, las mesas, la tierra. At the end of April, to César Chávez and Dolores Huerta. At the end of April, the vines already green with buds, death came to the field worker, to the Caesar of the grapes dressed in blue, of the onions in white petticoats, of the apples in red vestments. She said to him, Come, Cesar, and took him from the poisoned grapes, the watermelons, the melons full of ill, the battles of the furrows, the ambushes of the ditches, the Guadalupe standard, the red and black flag. But in the furrows, his voice left planted, his longing for justice, which is to say his demands for bread for the hungry, healing for the sick, books for the innocent. His voice will bear fruit and there will be rejoicing. In the, <clears throat> in the furrows, in the ditches, round the tables, in the land. That uh, was my elegy to Cesare Chavez uh, at the time of his death. In '93, uh, at the end of March, at the end of April, in '93, <clears throat> the um, like all battles, it seems for justice, it's a non-continuing one. The uh, uh, the farm workers still have not uh, uh, completely won their their rights, and they continually still fight for the 
uh, for the rights to unionize and to uh, get living wages and uh, and good working conditions. It seems that the that uh, in some aspects it uh, it worsens. Right now, it's very interesting that one of the uh, uh, big concerns of the country is so-called the immigration issue. Huh. Right. Uh, <laughs> we forget that the pilgrims themselves were <laughs> were were immigrants and not at all work welcome and and welcomed on the shore, but uh, abused their welcome. Uh, not so with the immigrants of today. They they carry the brunt of them. Of the of, of the hard labor or of harvesting and building our infrastructure here, it would be inter- it's interesting to note that uh, many of our immigrants come from Latin American countries to the south of us, and uh, and most of them are of direct indigenous uh, descent. Uh, right. This, uh, yeah, and then you think about you know how um, you know all of the land that we, you know, call California, Texas, Arizona, um, let's see, California, Colorado, Arizona. Montana. Yes, you know, <laughs> no, not that far, but but they, they, you know, they all belong. I mean, they were all Mexico, <laughs> you know, um, you know, before the Treaty of Guadalupe. So, um, yeah, and and just you know, it just happened, you know, so that fortuitously. Um, uh, the land was was split up before the gold rush, before gold was discovered. Yes. Otherwise, it, you know, we you know, Spanish would be the national language. But I was wondering, with regards to um, you know, Spanish, you know, which is the language of the colonizer, um, do you um, do you know the any of the language? Because I know, you know, um, you know, with regards to the how. Indigenous children were taken from their families and sent to boarding schools and whipped so that they wouldn't use their language and stripped of all of their their, their culture. Um, so the language has actually been lost in quite a few communities. But I was wondering if you uh, and your family were able to hold on to any of of the language of of your indigenous ancestors. No, no, not at all. Uh, as happens with many people in uh, Mexico, uh, the uh, the indigenous language were lost to many of us, as were our indigenous names, because um, we were all forced uh, as uh, as Indians, uh, we were all forced to take on the the Christianizing uh, that this. Uh, that the Spaniards brought over, and we were given the names of our of our Spanish uh, godparents, so that very few of us have maintained our indi- even our indigenous names. Uh, <clears throat> I have had to reclaim my indigenous roots of it through scholarship, through study, and. Um, it's always the question, you know, of who is indigenous and who is not, especially when there is such a blending of the bloods as it is in Mexico, as it is everywhere. And we have to realize that the that borders and nationalities are very, very artificial things. 
The earth has no borders. You know, we talk about globalization, and we talk about it in the United States particularly in a very skewed, screwed-up way, to, <laughs> to be very frank about it. Uh, when we talk about globalization, we're talking about the imposition of an unbridled capitalism upon the whole world, which is uh, probably the most abusive of all the economic systems that I can think of. Well, I don't know if there's any more abusive than feudalism, but uh, but in its effects, it's very much like it. So uh, uh, we have to really get serious about globalization. We have to get serious about it so that everyone in the world uh, benefits from the economic, from an economic system that uh, that honors the earth and that honors everyone. Mm. The, with, the, with the imposition of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, it has, it, it, it has had horrendous results in Mexico. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, hardly any benefits. There's been a, uh, a degradation of the environment, uh, lowering of wages, uh, anti-union movements by the by the wealthy and those that, uh, that control the the assembly plants that were instituted there. And that so much influx of immigrants from the South have entered the United States is an indication of the poverty that has caused there. If, if we really globalized an economy that benefited everyone, there would, be, there would not be the need of immigration that we, uh, that we have now. So let's stop being hypocrites and really work for a, for a just economic system for the world. Uh, and for the earth, let us uh, realize that we are not separate from the earth, that the seamless earth is under a tremendous danger from our economic system and from our disregard and abuse of the earth. And we have to really battle with all, with all that we have, our thought, our souls, our hearts, and definitely our bodies. You know, we have, um, uh, we are not a kind nation. Our whole history has been one of empire and of, uh, and of belligerence toward, uh, toward other countries. We have the biggest arsenal the world has ever seen. We have the biggest arsenal in the whole world. We are, uh, we have the greatest uh, nuclear uh, arsenal in the world. And uh, whenever another country dares to uh, to intend creating an uh, a nuclear weapon of their own, we all get all excited, but we don't give up any of our own. Uh, yeah. I wanted to um, let you know, um, uh, Raphael, that we've been joined by Carla. Welcome, Carla, to Wanda's Picks. Hi. Good morning. Hi, how are you this morning? Good morning, Good morning. Carla. <laughs> so, um, I'm good. 
Great, great. I'm going to introduce Carla really briefly, Raphael, and then I wanted perhaps for you to read that poem that you wrote, uh, that poem you wrote when you were protesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, some of the armament <laughs> build up. Um, Carla was born in Berkeley. She graduated from Vassar College in 1989 and currently teaches literature. Her poetry and essays have been published in Conch, Bamboo, Ri Bamboo Ridge, Multi-America, Essays on Cultural Peace and Cultural War, and Hip Mama. She has performed her poetry with Rodessa Jones in the Medea Project and with Joyce Liu in Carving Circles. She has taught poetry in the penal system to both youth and adults. In 2001, she spent a year teaching in Zimbabwe and is currently working on her memoir. Her first book of poetry, Swallowing Watermelons, was published by Ishmael Reed Publishing Company in 2006. And Carla was the other uh, featured reader this weekend uh, with, with uh, Rafael Jesus um, Gonzalez um, at the Rebecca's Books reading. And she's a marvelous poet also. So welcome, Carla. Mm, thank so, you. Uh, and Carla's going to be sharing poetry um, of Native Americans that she selected for us. And uh, so, Raphael, um, perhaps you can read that poem, uh, recite that poem that I mentioned, and then, Carla, you can share your first poem. <clears throat> sure, that would work. Okay. okay. Yeah, certainly. I'd be glad to. Okay. <clears throat> it's entitled, Here for Life. Vandenberg, January 24th, 1983. <clears throat> and that was on the occasion of the... Of the attempt to block the uh, testing of the MX missile, uh, first strike nuclear weapon. And uh, there were about 900 of us arrested and uh, placed in Lompoc Federal Prison for, for some days uh, for our attempts. I am here. I wear the old one's jade. It's life, they said, and precious. Turquoise of sought to hone my visions and coral to cultivate the heart, mother of pearl for purity. I have put on what power I could to tell you there are mountains where the stones sleep, hawks nest there, and lichens older than the ice is cold. The sea is vast and deep, keeping secrets darker than the rocks are hard. I am here to tell you the earth is made of things, so much themselves they make the angels kneel. We walk among them, and they are certain as the rain is wet, and they are fragile as the pine is tall. We too belong to them. They count upon our singing, the footfalls of our dance, our children's shouts, their laughter. I am here for the unfinished song, the uncompleted dance, the healing the dreadful fakes of love. I am here for life, and I will not go away. And that is a promise. 
That is so as long as I have beautiful. breath in me, I'll, I'm in there <laughs> in the fraud for justice and for peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. We definitely can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really great that you're you're here and 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 that's your mission and that's your cause. And uh, and there were 900 others, you know, at that particular you know moment that believed the same thing. Yes, and there are many of us. There are many of us. Yeah. We have elected a new president who can smile on the basis of that hope and on that and on those ideals and on those and in that struggle. Let us hope that he fully represents those. Mhm. Yeah. So okay. Carla, you um you sent me uh, an email that you were gonna be reading three poems and uh so which one are you gonna start with? Um, I'm going to start with a poem by Joy Harjo called Remember. Um, Joy Harjo is one of my favorite poets um, in the world. And this poem, I feel, is really about um, remembering, well, it's called Remember, but it's really about cultural roots and background. So I just selected this one. Uh, Remember. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. I met her once in a bar in Iowa City. Remember the sun's birth at dawn, that she is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. And remember your father. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are. Red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. I hear her singing Kiowa war dance songs at the corner, fourth and central once. Remember that you are all people and that all people are you. Remember that you are this universe and that you, this universe is you. Remember that all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember that language comes from this. Remember the dance that language is, that life is. <coughs> that's from, uh, that's Joy Harjo from How We Became Human. And oh, I just wow. thought that was a beautiful poem to read um, as we go into the winter season. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, how we became human. Yeah, um, how we became human as a nation, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, by electing a human being. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully Bush will regain his humanity once he's no longer president. Because uh, I didn't know him back then. But Well, you know, I noticed they keep saying he's trying to cooperate with Barack Obama already, so I found that already interesting. Well, I'm sure he realizes, you know, when he's alone, that he, he 
really messed up this nation. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, he le- he's leaving Obama with a big mess. Um, so, yeah. But that was a really beautiful poem, um, How We Became Human collection. Um, uh, Raphael, would you like to read uh, Kali? Yes. Uh, this is uh, a Kali is um, a poem that I wrote in the Nahua mode, which is the language of the... Uh, of the native peoples of the central plateau of Mexico, of which the Aztecs were were a member, and Cali uh, means house. Read it in Spanish first, and then in English, Cali casa. Definición al modo nahua. Es espacio labrado. Se define el espacio. Gruñe, canturrea, canta, calla. Nuestros corazones, fugaces como las flores, les envidian raíces. En una casa pretendemos raíces. Decimos, en este espacio vivimos. Aquí habita nuestro dormir. Teme la casa que gruña, te devorará vivo. Si no encuentras casa que cante, encuentra casa que canturre. Una casa callada se tiene que enseñar a cantar. Es difícil labor. Uno se tiene que ser seguro que sea maestro del canto. Solamente con un corazón de jade podremos enseñar a nuestros espacios cantar. Cali, House, Definition in the Nahua Mode It is of carved space. Space is defined. It snarls, it hums, it sings, it is silent. Our hearts, ephemeral as the flowers, envy them roots. In a house we pretend to roots. We say, in this space we live. Here, our sleeping is housed. Beware the house that snarls. It will devour you alive. If you cannot find a house that sings, find one that hums. A house that is silent must be taught song. It is a difficult task. One must be certain. He is a master of song. Only with a heart of jade can we teach our spaces to sing. That uh, poem, of course, refers to the spaces that we inhabit, the uh, the house that roofs us. But in a larger sense, it is the house of the universe, it's the house of the earth that we must that uh, not so much teach to sing, but from whom we must learn to sing. We must make our spaces full of song and not full of strife. I think that is that is a major task, and especially now at this time when we are so surrounded by snarling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cause I, don't know, I was wondering as you were reading it. I love that line about you know singing. You know, house a home that sings. I was wondering if um, if joy, if song is 
joy expressing itself. And so homes that sing are homes where there's joy, perhaps. I was wondering. <laughs> what it do you think, Carla? It definitely feels like that. When I heard that poem, that's how I interpreted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why don't you share another one, Carla? Okay. Um, the second one I have is um, called, I actually got a um, poem by um, Simon Ortiz called The Story of How a Wall Stands. It's mm. sort of about um, passing down history. So, um, at Aku, there's a um, wall that's almost 400 years old, and it um, supports, so this story is about this wall, this poem is about this wall um, in the place where um, Simon Ortiz visited. So... Um, And in Hawaii, and in Hawaii, there are also all these walls that were built by um, ancient people. And so I was connected to this poem because in Hawaii, well, there are all these myths around where these walls come from um, that ancient Hawaiians (coughs) built that still stand, um, reminding us of people who were there in the past. And um, one of the biggest things that is always coming into conflict in Hawaii right now is when, because um, Hawaii is still small enough where there are still heiaus, which are traditional burial grounds, where people know where their ancestors were buried. And so what happens is progress comes and then um, the state wants to build a freeway or someone wants to build a hotel. And then there's always this conflict which ensues around preserving a sacred ground versus progress which is, you know, building a freeway or building a highway. Or building um, a mall like in uh, Emeryville, right? Yeah, building a mall like in Emeryville. And I've just, in the course of my life, I've seen so many struggles. And generally speaking, the freeway will win out. But it's sort of like the struggle um, that has become so important of preserving the culture before preserving the culture. Um, So this is a poem called The Story of How a Wall Stands. My father, who works with stones, says, that's just the part you see, the stones which seem to be just packed in on the outside. With his hands, he puts the stones and mud in place. Underneath what looks like loose stone, there is stone woven together. He ties one hand over the other, fitting like the bones of his hand and fingers. That's what is holding it together. It is built that carefully, he says. The mud mixed to a certain texture patiently with the fingers worked in the palm of his hand so that they, between the stones, hold together for a long time. He tells me those things. The story of them worked with his fingers in the palm of his hand, working the stone and the mud until they become the wall that stands a long, long time. Hmm. Nice. Where, where is the um, where is the wall that you said the um, the poet, the wall that's in his where he lived? In Aku. Where is that? In um, South America. 
Oh, okay. In New Mexico. Okay. Okay. Well, um, uh, Rafael, would you like to read your last poem? Um, if we do not speak, uh, say no hablamos. Yes. This uh, poem um, I wrote specifically to be read at the uh, World <laughs> Congress of Poets in uh, China, in Taishan, which is uh, a good ways from Beijing, in 2005. Uh, I was asked to present a paper and do a reading at the Congress, and uh, I really w wondered what I what was the thing that I wanted to say to my fellow poets from around the world, and to everybody, because everybody actually has the poet in them. Si no hablamos. Si no hablamos para lavar la tierra, es mejor que guardemos silencio. Lo al aire que llena el fuelle del pulmón y alimenta la sangre del corazón, que lleva la luz, el olor de las flores y los mares, los cantos de las aves y el aullido del viento, que conspira con la distancia para hacer azul el monte, lo al fuego, que alumbre el día y calienta la noche, cuece nuestro alimento y da ímpetu a nuestra voluntad, que es el corazón de la tierra, este fragmento de lucero que quema y purifica por bien o por mal. Lo al agua que hace a los ríos y a los mares, que da sustancia a la nube y a nosotros, que hace verde a los bosques y los campos, que hincha el fruto y envientra nuestro nacer. Lo a la tierra, que es el suelo, la montaña y las piedras, que lleva a los bosques y es la arena de los desiertos, que nos forma los huesos y sala a los mares la sangre, que es nuestro hogar y sitio. Si no alabamos en alabanza a la tierra, si no cantamos en festejo a la vida, es mejor que guardemos silencio. If we do not speak to praise the earth, it is best we keep silent. Praise air that fills the bellows of the lung and feeds our heart's blood, that carries light, the smell of flowers and the seas, the songs of birds and the winds howl, that conspires with distance to make the mountains blue. Praise fire that lights the day and warms the night, cooks our food and gives motion to our wills, that is the heart of earth, this fragment of a star, that purifies and burns for good or ill. Praise water that makes the rivers and the seas, that gives substance to the clouds and me, makes green the forest and the fields that throws the fruit and wombs our birth. Praise earth that is the ground, the mountain and the stones, 
that holds the forests and is the desert sand that builds our bones and salts the seas, the blood that is our home and place. If we do not speak in praise of the earth, if we do not sing in celebration of life, it is best we keep silence. I worked there, I misread one of the lines. Somehow or other it came out and I said it that gives substance to the clouds in me. <laughs> That's the line actually reads that gives substance to the clouds in us. You know, we are nine, 97% water, we are told. So we are part of the earth. We're not exiles like many of our religions teach us that we are exiles upon the earth to go to some place in paradise. This is the only paradise we know, this this earth. If we take a drop of blood from our veins and analyze it chemically and through microscopes, we find that that drop of blood has every element of which the earth is made. Traces of iron and copper and sulfur and oxygen, everything that the earth is made from. And uh, and we must, that is what we have to be grateful for. That's what we have to praise and to sing. Mm-hmm. Let me well, see a little bit are, about... Pardon? Yes, sorry. We're, we're running out of time. Yes, and I'm I, sorry. And my other yes. guests are in the studio and ready <laughs> yes, to come indeed. in. So, well, let me leave you with that. Did <laughs> <laughs> Carla read her last poem? <laughs> oh, it's okay. I love to listen to Raphael's poetry, and I love to think about all these things, our connection. I love thinking about the connection to the earth because it's such important that we acknowledge that right now instead of like flee from that thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So Carla, you have one more? Yeah, one more by Mary Tall Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no word for goodbye. Um, Mary Tall Mountain is a um, native Alaskan writer. She was born in 1918 in Nulato, a village along the Yukon River in Alaska. um, This is a poem about language a little bit. There's no word for goodbye. Sequoia, I said, looking through the net of... (coughs) Excuse me. Sequoia, I said, looking through the net of wrinkles into wise black pools of her eyes. What do you say in Athabaskan when you leave each other? What is the word for goodbye? A shade of feeling rippled the wind-tanned skin. Ah, nothing, she said, watching the river flash. She looked at me close. We just say tala. That means see you. We never leave each other. When does your mouth say goodbye to your heart? She touched me light as a bluebell. You forget when you leave us, you're so small. We always think you're coming back. But if you don't, we'll see you someplace else, you understand? There is no word goodbye. Yeah, nice. Well, um, today uh, we've had on the air Rafael Jesus Gonzalez and Carla Brandage <coughs> poetry and thoughts about about the planet, about our human species, <laughs> about the future, 
and uh, and about this day called Thanksgiving that many of us will be celebrating it and counting our blessings, you know, tomorrow and uh, probably thinking about the less fortunate and maybe doing something, some small thing that can make someone's life a little better. So thank you both for being on the air with me this morning. Well, thank you and many blessings to you, Honda, and to you, Carla, and to everyone listening. Blessings to you all. <laughs> well, today is Thanksgiving or Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh yeah, that was really, really wonderful listening to that conversation. From twelve years ago, just as bright and just as important then as it is now. Um and we are closing this conversation and reflective um program with another show first aired April 28, 2009, and it features director Tim Disney and subject Regina N. Kelly of the new film at that particular time, American Violet, uh, which was opening in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, and after uh, we speak to um, Ms. Kelly and Mr. Disney, we uh, speak to another director, uh, Jean-Marie Tineau, uh, or Tino, and his film at that particular time was called, that was new film at that time, <laughs> was Sacred Places. And that film looks at African cinema and the Fespaco Film Festival at that time in its 40th anniversary, on its 40th anniversary, and questions its goals and objectives. Um and that was a part of the San Francisco International Film Festival, which everyone knows canceled its season this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we close the show from 2009, uh, April 2009, with a wonderful conversation, extended conversation with Shakem Shakem, Ra'un Nefer Amen the first. Um, and uh, he's a spiritual leader and founder of the Asara Set community and the author of many books, uh, The Metal Netter, and this particular one at that time was a novel that he wrote, Heru, The Resurrection. So I don't know if we're going to be able to get to all of that, <laughs> but it's in the archive. So um, enjoy, and thank you so much for joining us uh, for another edition of Wanda's Picks. So Marilyn Buck, locked up by the beast imperialism these 22 years of an 80-year sentence, has drawn down upon herself the cruelest living punishment of the beast, the cruelest terror that the beast can mete out for the greatest crime of all, according to the beast's syncophants, that is, the crime of trying to make revolution. of Marilyn Buck's work uh, read by a variety of artists and musicians, and that was Amiri Baraka, uh, who is part of the introduction to that wonderful compilation CD. 
which is um, you can get at the Freedom Archives website, freedomarchives.org. This is Wanda's Picks, and we are coming to you live on Tuesday, a special special um, program which is going to be rebroadcast on Friday, May 1st, because on May 1st I'm going to be going to visit Women Inside with uh California College for Women Prisoners. We we make um, quarterly visits to 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 meet with the educate meet with the organizers of the women who are incarcerated um, in the Central Valley, and you know California, and maybe you don't know California incarcerates more women than any other place in the country, and we have two of the largest prisons in the country located in Central Valley where our food is grown. Um, today we are joined by. Two wonderful people, um, writer and producer uh, Bill Haney and uh, the subject, uh, Regina and Kelly of American Violet. And uh, it's going to be a really great conversation. Let's see. Um, I'm trying to welcome them into the studio, and it is not happening. Let me see. Gosh, technical difficulties. (laughs) Let's see. Uh Uh-oh. Um, let's try it again. Okay. Um, <clears throat> see if it works this time. Okay. Trying again for the second time. Ah. Hmm. Can you hear me? No, they can't hear me. Gosh. Oh, there it is. Hello. Yes. Oh. <laughs> How are you? Is this Regina? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Is Bill with you? No, it's Tim is here. Tim Disney. Hmm? Tim. Tim, Tim. is here with me. Tim Disney. Oh, okay, Tim. Oh, yeah. Okay, Tim, the director. Okay. okay. Cool, cool, super. Welcome to Wanda's Picks. And um, really, really looking forward um, to uh, – well, I really enjoyed the uh, – the film yesterday was my second time seeing it, and I'm really looking forward to you all bringing home all kind of awards, you know, when it comes that time again for the, um, what is it, the Grammys? Uh, or is it the we have wonderful music in the movie, but I, I don't know about the Grammys. <laughs> oh, uh, which I'm trying to think, you know, what do films get? What's the award that you all get? I, I don't even dare say the word. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but I'm sure, you know, because it's, it's just a really fine piece of um Art and it's a great story. So I'm going to read um, the synopsis and then we can start talking. Um, it's based on true events in the midst of the 2000 election. Uh, American Violet tells the astonishing story of Dee Roberts, um, critically hailed newcomer uh, Nicole uh, Bahari. She portrays Dee Roberts, who is um, uh, based on Regina Kelly's life. And she's a 24 year old African American single mother of four young girls living in a small Texas town who is barely making ends meet on a waitress's salary and government subsidies. On an early November morning, while Dee works a shift at the local diner, the powerful local district attorney, Academy Award nominee uh, Michael O'Keefe, leads an extensive drug bust, sweeping her Arlington Springs housing project with military precision. Police drag Dee from work in handcuffs, dumping her in the squalor of the Women's County Prison. Indicted based on the uncooperated word of a single and dubious police informant facing his own drug charges, Dee soon discovers she has been charged as a drug dealer. Even though Dee has no prior drug record and no drugs were found on her in the raid or any subsequent searches, 
she is offered a hellish choice, plead guilty and go home as a convicted felon or remain in prison and fight the charges, thus jeopardizing her custody and risking a long prison sentence. Despite the urges of her mother, Academy Award nominee, Playboy Academy Award nominee, Alfred Woodard, and with her freedom and the custody of her children at stake, she chose to fight the district attorney and the unyielding criminal justice system he represents, joining an unlikely alliance with an ACLU attorney, Tim Blake Nelson, and former local narcotics office officer, Will Patton. Dee risks everything in a battle that forever changes her life and the Texas justice system. American Violet also stars Emmy Award winner Charles S. Dutton and how do you pronounce it? Is it Zivit or how do you pronounce that? Exhibit. Exhibit. Okay. Who is Exhibit? I don't I don't know Ex- Exhibit. Exhibit is a uh, is a hip hop artist. Uh mm-hmm. he's also well known as the host of MTV's Pimp My Rye, among other things. Okay. And he's uh he's becoming a, quite a fine actor. Mhm. Yeah. He's, he's terrific so, in everything. Okay, cool. So tell me, um uh Tim how did you um, find out about the story, and how did you meet Regina? How did you like you 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 mentioned last night, you know, about the NPR segment? But then, how did you go about after you know hearing the story, you know, wanting to make this film, wanting to explore this further, and and how did you meet Regina? Well, we first came across this material uh, on an NPR story about six years ago. My partner, uh, the producer and writer of the movie, Bill Haney, heard the story on NPR, and he called me up immediately afterwards and told me about it, and when I first heard the broad outlines of it, I thought it must have been from the 1930s or something. It was mm-hmm. just almost a medieval kind of story, and, uh, you know, I was dismayed to find out that this is a contemporary story. Right. Uh, and we had a discussion among ourselves about whether it ought to be a documentary or feature, and in the end we decided to try to pursue it as a feature because we thought we could affect more people that way, that that Regina's story was powerful enough and she was compelling enough a character as were the surrounding characters to support a feature film, which, if done right, uh, can really touch a lot of people's lives. Uh, the first step was to contact the ACLU, and we had some lengthy conversations with them about it, and uh, eventually we came to an agreement with them, uh, and they opened their records to us and, and introduced us to Regina. That's how we came to find her and, and the other folks in the town who uh, cooperated with us to tell their story. Right, yeah. Regina, um, oh gosh, uh, what do you think about the film and and the uh, uh, Nicole's portrayal of of you through the character D. Roberts? What do you think about the film? And and I'm just just so amazed at you know your gumption to take on you know such a you know a political machine. You know the guy has so much power. You know the DA who is still you know. Um, in this position presently. So talk about um, sort of what you think of the film and, and the character and, and sort of, you know, where you got that courage because uh, in the film it, it seems as if everyone was telling you to take the, um, you know, the plea, you know, plea bargain. And, um, and you mentioned in the notes and also um, I really like in the credits how it, it talks about how many people that are fr- – presently incarcerated are there because of plea bargains. I believe 90% take the plea bargain. Um, okay, I'm going to start with um, how I like the movie. Yes. Um, I love the movie. The movie is, is great. I feel like the director and the producer did a great job, you know, in getting the message out there. Um, as far as Nicole Beharry, she did an amazing job, you know, in portraying, you know, me in the film. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't ask for anyone to do a better job. 
as far as the the DA, um, I'm not. <laughs> I I got my courage really, you know, going up against him through my faith in God, and also making you know a choice to show my children, you know, that no matter what we're faced with, you know, we can overcome it. So I'm not going to say it was easy. It was no way at all easy. It was very hard, but at the same time, it was well worth it. Because um, uh, it, you know, um, the character in the film. I don't know. I know um, last night, um, Tim, you mentioned um, that there were composites. You know, some of the characters are composite, and and some are like the the uh, political figures are actually, you know, they are who they are. And I was wondering, um, uh, Regina, how much of what the character experienced with regards to being locked up for 21 days um, was was actual, like was true. Um, could you talk about sort of that experience? Because that seemed like uh, something that changed the character's life, um, made her into an activist, you know, made her, to, you know, want to fight this injustice. Could you talk about, um, you know, sort of how it was in actuality and how it's portrayed? Uh, is it is it right on, the portrayal of what what it was like in inside the uh the prison um the actual movie itself I always say it's you know pretty much ninety five percent accurate you know uh -huh. in everything that went on um as far as the portrayal of me being in jail um the cell that I was in was actually made for two people, so there wasn't four bunks it was only two bunks, and the the other two we had to sleep you know on the concrete floor. And um, there's no privacy or anything like that, and it's not very clean in there or anything like that. So I don't think the intentions of prison, they want it to be, you know, some fancy spa or hotel, you know, to make you comfortable. Yeah, it's worse in every sense. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I should add that it that it is a, a feature film. It's it's not a documentary. Right. We, uh, we movieized it in the sense that we compressed the timelines, and we took complex situations and tried to epitomize them or simplify them so that we could make a compelling movie out of it. In some ways, you have to change some things to more accurately reflect what really happened uh, mm -hmm. in, in, some, in an interesting way. And really, the, the, one of the challenges of putting this movie together was taking just mountains and mountains of material and distilling it down to its essence. And it took us about four years to sort through all the material, to meet the mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. uh, at, and to develop it into a script that we felt was compelling. You know, in the end, uh, what, what drew us to the material and what I hope the audiences take away from it is, uh, is that all of this started with an individual's choice. When you think about Regina's life, she was 23, I believe, when the events happened to her. Uh, single African-American mother of four kids living in a rural Texas town. That's about as far from the centers of power as anyone can be in our society. And yet her choice has had this ripple effect, you know, and now we're here on the radio talking to you about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we feel like we're just one link in this chain. Uh, and now it's our job to hand it over to audiences, and hopefully they'll take inspiration from, uh, from what started with Regina. Right. Yeah, um, I was just thinking, um, Tim, um, as I was watching the film um, American Violet, 
I was thinking about, um, you know, the documentary, Tulia, Texas, which is also in Texas, and I think, I was thinking, I think Texas executed someone last week, I believe, and and then I was thinking about another documentary film, Race to Justice, and um, just wanted to um, ask you to talk about sort of, um, uh, you know, you, your choice was to, to make this into a, a feature as opposed to a documentary, um, so it's based on a true story. But I was wondering sort of um, in, in the film, uh, it's set in Melody, Texas. I think that's such a beautiful name, Melody. Um, and then and then you go to um, another town where the uh, professor uh, lived who um, recommended the, um, the former, um, I guess, uh, narcotics, um, police officer trainer. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering, sort of, how, um, sort of, where, where, where the story is set? Is it? Did you, did you film? I assume I said, but where did you film it? And, and where did it? Where did the actual story take place? The, the actual story took place uh, in a town called Hearn, Texas, which is mm-hmm. about 30 miles from College Station. If you know where that is, uh, it's about, it's, it's uh, northeast of Austin. North of Houston, about 120 miles, so east of Texas generally. Uh, the town where the university was, uh, that scene was uh, set in Waco, which is another 60 miles north of the town. Okay. Uh, we actually filmed the movie in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louisiana offers some incentives for production that we just couldn't turn down, and it's right next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Louisiana actually is the incarceration capital of the world. It has the highest rate of incarceration of any place in the, on Earth. Uh, Texas is close behind, but I think fourth. Texas, of course, is the execution capital of the world. Right, yeah. I thought California, I thought we um, incarcerated more people than any other state. We don't? We we don't have the highest rate of incarceration. Okay. We may have the highest number of prisoners. Right. But, but, um. You know what? It's bad everywhere. (laughs) Right, yeah. Here's here's an interesting statistic. In uh 1971, when Nixon declared the war on drugs, mm-hmm. uh, there were about 200,000 people in jails and prisons in America. Now there are 2.3 million. And mm-hmm. uh, a big part of that increase has been these insane uh, punitive drug laws that we have. Other mm-hmm. aspects have been the mandatory sentencing and three strikes laws and other things like that. In California, of course, we have the three strikes rule that, that puts so many people away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's just a terrible, terrible wasteful, destructive policy that we have. And I hope, you know, we have this opportunity now where some previously uh, taboo subjects are coming up for discussion in our country. Hopefully we can make some changes. New York recently repealed the the so-called Rockefeller laws, which were uh, similar drug laws that were passed back in the 70s. Drugs are a terrible thing. There's no question about that. To argue uh, for changing drug laws is not to endorse the free use of drugs, which can be terribly destructive things. But it, but we should regard addiction and drug use as a public health issue, not as a military issue. This, the term war on drugs, is, is terribly confining because if you're engaged in a war, you can't lose. You know, how can you advocate losing a war? Of course we can't do that. It traps us. That mentality traps us, and we just have to get away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about um, how – the CIA, you know, dumped crack cocaine and and guns, handguns, in the black communities in Los Angeles and you know, um, San Francisco Bay Area, 
at the height of the Black Panther movie move to movement, sorry, to um to dismantle the organization and it was very successful and then you look at um in in Texas where the the film uh, well not the film, excuse me, where where the incident, the jug sweep happened and, and you know, in the film, um the the drug that, you know, is being prosecuted at uh, people get longer sentences is crack cocaine, and so when um, the attorney um, general sends in these folks and and they get arrested, and um, you know D. Roberts, you know, is the lead in the the uh, class action against the uh, this these arrests. Um, you sort of see sort of the disparity between um, you know the sentencing. And and race, you know, definitely is is a card, and that's really great, you know, the way um, uh, you all um, in in the film, and also in real life, you can talk about sort of what part is film and what part is, you know, it, how it actually happened, how how you all set that up in in that particular scene, you know, where um, it's shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that the DA is a racist person. Could you talk about that scene? Well. Uh there's no doubt that the the brunt of this this uh, uh, ridiculous war on drugs falls on people of color, and every you know that's not my opinion, and every measurable statistic bears that out, and that's due to all kinds of things: the disparity in the way that crack as opposed to powder cocaine is is dealt with, and and even more than that in in selective enforcement, mm-hmm. uh, and and some of that is willful, and some of that is not willful, but the end result is. Uh, is just grievous. So you know the, the the sad truth is that this it, it took a case like this where the where the uh, the villain uh, is so overt and extreme, uh, you know that there's no question, uh, and yet it's very very difficult to prove even in that mm-hmm. case. And I hope that one of the things that comes out of the deposition fees at the end is that being right isn't always enough in when it comes to this kind of litigation. You know, I'd like to think that being right was enough, but it just isn't. You know, when you when you see how the D. Roberts character is treated by the attorney in the deposition, you get the sense that if this goes to trial, it's going to be ugly for her, and and that's exactly his intent there is to intimidate them to not pursue the case. Uh, so you know, uh, mo- most people uh, are not as blatant; they're a little more sophisticated than the D.A. in this case. Uh, and that makes it all the harder to uh, to win these kinds of cases. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. That's what makes Regina's story so extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Um, Regina, could you talk about um, how it was when you were um, since the uh, decision of of your legal team was to try to settle without taking um, the uh, the case to to court because of the uh, the judge being you know favoring the DA because the DA and he were you know were you know in the same boat so to speak you know and he wasn't going to push him out. Um, could you talk about um, what it was like um, you know the deposition and um, and those questions that came up you know where they were trying to smear your uh, your character. And 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 was it how long you know were you deposed and sort of how you were able to? Because I just find it really amazing. I kept on thinking um, in the film uh, 
that Dee was going to capitulate, was going to take the plea, uh, because everyone was telling her to take the plea, except she got some really good advice, you know, from the jailhouse lawyers in her cell who told her, well, girl, if you take, you know, the plea, then it means that you will have a felony. And that means you can't live in subsidized housing, you can't get food stamps, you can't do this, you can't do that. And and her attorney wasn't telling her any of that, like what the consequences were. He was just saying, you plea and you will go home later on the same day or the next day. So if you could talk about... Um, Sort of that whole deposition and uh, experience, the real one. Um, the deposition, I'm not. Sh- I I want to say it was about four hours long. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure how long it it really took or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the deposition itself was horrible in every sense. I mean, they asked every question they could, and they belittled me so much as if you know. I was really not even a human being, and it was, you know, very bad. But at the same time, I knew it was going to be like that, and I prepared myself for it because I knew they would try everything that they could in order to break me down and say, okay, I don't want to do this, you know, anymore. Let's just, you know, stop. But, you know, so I was very prepared for it. And my ACLU attorney, he he helped prepare me, you know, for that whole thing. And so... I'm not going to say it was easy because it did hurt my feelings a lot, but at the same time, I knew what I had to go through in order to make everything work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, after it was all over and the uh, the charges were were dropped and your records your records were expunged as well as everyone who had pleaded um, made the plea bargains, they were all released and their records expunged. How how did the community treat you after that? Um, did they treat you fine? And and were there any repercussions uh, behind you know your successful suit from the powers that be, the police, you know, the DA who ended up running, um, you know, for office because they couldn't get rid of him, and and the police force? Did things were things okay? Were they way they were they the way they were before? Um, I believe you said there were no more raids because the law changed as a as a result of of your your um your suit um um because of the suit um there was a law passed in texas where you're no longer allowed to use the single word of anybody to convict you know someone else on and um the drug task force units were you know dismantled where they they weren't allowed to use those anymore also um but as far as the community every we had a pretty good you know, number of people who were on board and who wanted to help you know, change things around in our community when we were going through the settlement. But it's like after we settled, everybody went their own way, and they didn't, you know, want to get involved anymore. They didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And oh. so um, I'm not sure why. I don't know if they felt like, you know, the battle was over with. Um, I, I don't know. Everybody had their own reasons for doing what they did, but, you know, they just decided to go their separate ways. I, I know we only have a couple more minutes for this yeah. interview, and I, I just wanted to throw out to people that if they care about these issues, uh, that they can go to AmericanViolet.com. There's a listing there of all the theaters that it's playing, and it opens in uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area on uh, May 1st, Friday, uh, in a bunch of theaters. Uh, and there's also a link about what people can do if they care about these issues and, and, and want to get involved. I mean, first and foremost, the movie is a piece of inspiring entertainment, and I hope they, that people want to go see it for that reason. Uh, but, of course, it's set against uh, this, this backdrop, and it raises all kinds of issues that I think are really important. And I think a lot of listeners 
here would care about. So I encourage them to go to AmericanViolet.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the film is opening here in the San Francisco Bay Area um, at the Sony Theaters, Metreon 15 at 104 4th Street in San Francisco. And tonight you can actually see the film. Um, if there's a free screening tonight at the Metreon in San Francisco on 4th, I think the third level, at 7 p.m. So if you want to catch it, um, catch a preview, you can go tonight, which is um, Tuesday, uh, April 28th. Uh, the Metreon is the city, and, again, it opens on Friday, May 1st at the same theater, Metreon, and it's all over the place. It's going to be in San Bruno, Daly City, Redwood City, Mountain View, Oak Ridge, Richmond, California, Union City, Hayward, Emeryville, San Leandro, Mel Peters, and you know I don't see it in Oakland. I'll be darned. Wow, that is so interesting. It is not opening in Oakland anywhere. Wow, that is so disappointing. Okay. (laughs) I was wondering, um, uh, as as a closing remark, I was wondering, uh, Regina, if you could talk about, you mentioned... um, briefly yesterday, but you were connecting um, uh, incarceration with the new slavery. And I wonder if you could, like, expound on that a little bit. Well, um, it's obvious. Prison systems are just another form of cheap slavery, you know. You go to prison and you're like, you know, it's basically owned by the state. It's owned by the government. They get cheap labor from you, you know, for however long you're there. And then even when you come home, they still own you because you have to answer to them until you get off paper. You know, you're no longer allowed to vote or anything like that. So it basically ruins your life. Right, yeah. Oh, and, and thanks for mentioning um, uh, the cheap labor, because I was just thinking about how one thing um, the character, Dee Roberts, um, you know, mentioned over and over again, she really cared a lot about her her daughters, her children, and she wanted to make sure that, that they were well taken care of, that they were safe, Um you know, when she was arrested, they were with her mother, and then when she came out, her mother was helping her out. And then um, her their, her younger children's um, father kept on trying to intervene, and his his um, his girlfriend, you know, was a, a questionable character. And so she was, you know, a mother who would definitely, you know, go to bat for her kids. And I was wondering um, if you could talk about um, how your children are doing and what they thought of what they think of the film. Um, they actually love the film. We're all excited about it, you know. It's amazing, something new to all of us. Um, but they're, everybody is doing great, you know. It was hard at first going through, starting out everything, but we worked through everything, and now we're all fine. So, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more. This is a great experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I noticed that um, you're doing some public speaking, and um, and you mentioned to us yesterday that, you you no longer live in the town um, where um, you were raising your kids. You you moved away from there um, because um, the uh, your reception there um, has changed since the suit. Um, it's not as you, you you've um, it hasn't been good for you since um, you won. Um, actually, no, it hasn't. It's not been very inviting or anything like that. Um, I recently moved away in order for my children to um, be comfortable, to be comfortable and to live at peace or whatever. But, I mean, it's, it's a whole new life for us. And, again, I do do speaking engagements on all these issues, and my website is reginakelly.com. I want to um, thank you for inviting Tim and I, you know, on your show in order to get this message out, you know, and to make people aware of these issues. And I thank you, and I ask that everybody go out and support the film. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. 
Oh, sure. It's a great film. It's really beautiful. Um, and we didn't talk about sort of the juxtaposition of, you know, what's going on politically at the time uh, of, you know, these drug sweeps. But it's a really thought-provoking film, and it's really beautifully shot. And uh, and um, I love the title, American Violet. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Thank you. You all take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right. Peace and blessings. <laughs> so that was um, Tim and Regina, and uh, they were talking about, the film American Violet, which is opening on Friday, May 1st, uh, in theaters near you. Let's see. I think I'm going to play uh, another piece from the, uh, let's see, uh, Marilyn Buck's CD, uh, which, uh, which is really a, sort of ties in thematically. And uh, it's a poem that is read by... Oh, here it is, um, from Wild Poppies, and it's read by um, Uche Kalu, and it's called They Came From Me. Somebody came for my brother, spilled his body across the freeway, so he never made it to 18. They have come for my mother's heart. Sometimes she says she can't hear it beat, defeated from bearing too many children. They have come for my father's smile. These days he wears a frown, clutching the Bible, reciting scriptures instead of letting the river fall down his face because he's supposed to be a man now. They have come for my older brother. Car accident crushed his legs, dangling from a wheelchair. He only stares through steel bar cubicles. Orange has become the only color in his wardrobe. His skin burst open with blisters. Guess the guards had nothing better to do that morning. They have come for my family. They have come for my grandmother. Never made it past 40. Gave birth to nine kids. Only two survived. Only one is alive. My father gave birth to me, and I still walk this earth. They have come for my body. Grazed the land between my thighs. Looking for gold, diamonds, oil while I toiled. Bend my back to fill their mouths. Yes, they have come for my body. Fault lines etched across my back. My stomach a hollow grave to bury everyone else's blame. Take on everyone else's shame. Instead of singing my name, they have come for my ovaries. Sis, hoot, and howl. Dance across my belly. They have come for my smile. The one thing I took back from my house. Didn't let my mother's reminders to keep my mouth shut stop me. Maybe she thought this crumbling city of teeth held nothing but ruins. They have declared war on my people. Sometimes it's my family come to take. Sometimes it's my government come to take. And sometimes it's me come to take. They have come to offer Big Mac deals, a four-wheel drive, Visa MasterCard, a big backyard. But I don't need this. Because I've got my smile that I won't hide anymore. My lips will not wait at the door. I will not be your safari getaway African queen. I will not let you tour my land, my people. I will not let you spread my legs open and drill. I will not become your shell oil whore. Because if and when you come, I will come take what's mine. Because I need my smile, my cotton pillow hair, the way I stare at anyone who looks my way. I need my sweaty palms, my crooked teeth, my bone black hair. I need my lips, my voice, my choice to love anyone I please, to tease you with the possibility of coming home with me. I need my laugh. My full belly ain't gonna swallow your shit anymore. Laugh. My devastating contemplating what to do about the next tragedy in my life. Laugh. My 10 o'clock in the morning lazy Saturday with you in my arms. Laugh. I need myself. I need myself. I need myself. I need myself whole. I need myself whole. I need myself whole. Speaking tongues about me to my face, saying no to disgrace. 
I need myself whole. I need to rebuild this city and begin again. <laughs> that was They Came For Me uh, by Uchai Che uh, Kalu, and that's on the CD uh, featuring Marilyn Buck's work, Wild Poppies. You can get it at freedomarchive.org. We are joined by Jean-Marie Tino. How are you? Hello. Blessed love. Blessed love. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's so wonderful of you to give me two interviews in two days almost. <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, Jean-Marie Tino is in town because his film, Sacred Places, is uh, being screened at the San Francisco International Film Festival. So you can actually catch his latest film on Wednesday, um, the 29th, uh, 3.30 p.m. at Sundance Kabuki Cinemas in San Francisco, and you can visit sfiff.org for all the details. Um, the new film, Sacred Places, uh, by Jean-Marie uh, Tino, is uh, set in, in St. Leon, a modest neighborhood tucked between the cathedral and two mosques in the city of Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, where for 40 years the world's famous Fespaco Pan-African Film Festival, Ouagadougou, showcased the best achievements of African filmmaking. Uh, Sacred Places, a film about the fight to survive and maintain one's dignity in a hostile environment. Um, <laughs> so, um, Jean-Marie, um, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I wanted you to talk about your latest film and, and, and the narrative, the discussion that you, you, uh, you start around um, so the importance of film in the African, um, I guess, context and in African in the African community, I'm talking African in Africa, as well as African, you know, Africans in the diaspora, but specifically Africans um, on the continent, and and how you know you sort of, um, you know, made this film. It seems like a lot of times when I when I watch your films and um, thinking about the one um, that you did um, on looking at um, polygamy and how you had gone to you know a friend's wedding. You know, to film, and then, and then this story, and then the story. You started exploring the story about, you know, your mother being, I believe, what the second wife of your father. Is that? Am I remembering it correctly? Oh, Jean Marie. Uh oh. Let's try it again. Uh oh. Hello, hello. Oh, hi, yes? Jean Marie. Yes. Oh, you're on two phones. Um, hello. I, I got you on two phones. Which I, I am I am on I am which, on one phone. Oh okay, because I've got I've got two phones for you. Oh okay, one phone. Okay. Yes. Um, let's see. Okay, let me try something. Because I'm hearing feedback. Let me try something. Do, do you want me to call you with the other phone or? Okay. So no, this is fine. I just um, I know this is fine. I thought you were calling me on your Skype. And then Yes, I'm 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 calling you on on my Skype phone, yes. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Yeah, no, this is fine. So I was wondering I was asking you the question. Did you hear the question? Um about, about Yes, I, yes, I I heard the question. Yes, okay. uh, Wanda. And, and yeah, um yes, the film about polygamy, uh, Alex's wedding. Yes, he was a friend who invited me to attend his wedding and to videotape his wedding. And suddenly on the course of that, I realized that uh, uh, yeah, I was going to film a polygamist wedding, and it reminded me of some images of my my childhood, and also it gave me the opportunity to 
raised this issue about uh, polygamy and the injustice of the whole situation. And and this new film, uh, Sacred Places, um, it's also elements of life, suddenly. Life experiment, places where you go, questions that people ask you, and all the challenges that you face suddenly prompt you into addressing new issues, uh, and especially the issue of the African audience. Uh, who do we make our films for, and what kind of films are we are really making. So this question, this question came to me because I kept receiving this question all over the world. Uh, where, where is the African audience? Do you work for the African audience? And even in Africa, when you show the film, sometimes you show them only in big cinemas, in fancy hotels, but you never go into the poor neighborhood where people really need to access culture and to access uh, this element that we're talking about. So that's how Sacred Places came about, actually. Yeah, but I was thinking, the reason why I referenced um, the, uh, you know, Alex's wedding, you know, that you did in 2002 was because it seems that your films sort of meander, like it seems like, you know, you're just in the world and then and then you just, you know, just, you know, um, you have your life and, you know, you're a director, you know, you're a filmmaker, so it seems like maybe you always have your camera with you. I'm just sort of, I mean, I don't know. And, and so you're like, you're open to story and then you just happen to be in a situation that's like, oh, you know, you, your 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 you know your intention was to, you know, to go to the uh, Fest Paco, you know, for the 40th anniversary, right? So you were there, and then you happened to to take to visit this town that's nearby, and when you went to Fest Paco, I don't, I'm not sure if you were thinking about doing the film. So just like when you went to your friend to film your friend's wedding, you weren't necessarily going to make a film about polygamy. So I'm wondering, like, sort of your process. Um, <laughs> it just seems like you you seem to be open to to sort of you seem like you sort of you're open and you're spontaneous, you know, around like where your where your next film is coming. I mean, you might have like, for instance, when you did um, the uh, Colonial Misunderstanding, you know, that was a commission. So I think you knew you were doing that, but then who knows? you know, about some of the other films that, you know, like I just mentioned Alex's Wedding because it seemed like it was one of those. And then also, um, you know, Chief or Chef. Yes, Chief I, also. Is, Chief is in the same category, actually. Yeah. Because this is, this is a film that came to me while I was preparing to make a trip to the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alex's Wedding also came to me while, when I had finished uh, a trip to the country. Yes, there are many things that happened. Um, and I'm just there with my camera, and suddenly being a filmmaker, just say, oh, this is a very interesting story to follow. And actually, I'm part of the society, so suddenly when you're there and you see things, you can follow and and, and dig a little further, and suddenly you realize that these are some, this is something that was of concern to you, so I start digging a little further to understand more what's going on, and that's how some of my films, come into into being and and some of us are very well prepared because I write the proposal, I write the script and it takes a long time and some just come like that if I'm walk, traveling and suddenly I find a story that might be an idea of a, of a next project and that's also what a filmmaker is, I'm part of the society I'm part of the world so when things happen and when I see things that really bother me I try to address them with what I have, my tools are 
camera writing or trying to put the stories together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you do a really great job. I mean, like I, I told you before, and I'm really serious. Um, you know, you just really captivate me with all your stories, and you just... It's just so inviting the way you, um, you know, you you sort of just leave it open for us to. I mean, you don't tell us what to think, but um, oh, I hear myself echoing. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we. I think we reached some of the conclusions that you want us to reach. Um, you know, about like for instance, in this film, I just really loved um, your 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 main characters. You know, Jules. Uh, Cesar, the djembe maker and player, and Booba, yes. the video club manager of the neighborhood movie salon that serves as a praying place too, and then Abo, the 50-year-old senior technician who decides to become a public letter writer. Um, it's just it's just so cool. I mean, your your characters are like, they're like regular people. You know, it's almost like real TV or real, you know how they have like, what do they call it now? Um, people don't, I'm trying to think, what do they call it? Um, uh, not real TV, um, you know, you know now they just have regular people. Just they just film mm-hmm. them. They they don't have actors. Um, uh, yes, but but you you cannot compare what I'm doing to reality TV no, because no, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's, no. there's no perspective to reality TV. And here, you know, you're having regular people who are the real heroes of everyday life, like right, right, people, yeah, certainly. people who struggle to 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 make make ends meet are really the real people, and they and that's. They need to be empowered. They need to be seen on screen and to see their struggle and to put their struggle into a perspective that is going to enlighten the other people who are in that situation. Mm-hmm. But the reality show TV is just like to create emotion and to help to sell uh, popcorn and whatever and slice it with publicity and all this. So we we are not working on the same for the same for the same purpose. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. No, the quality is definitely different. No, I'm just saying that the people that you know um, that that become your your protagonists, you know, in your film, yes. they are, you know, they they, you, they feel like people you know. I mean, you, yes. know, you feel really connected and engaged. Like for instance, I just love Jules. Uh, he's just I just love him walking <laughs> through the town, announcing the films for the night, playing his djembe, and then and then he shows us how he makes the drum, and then he tells you that, you know, the drum came before film, you know, like they both tell yeah. stories, but the the, the djembe goes, is, you know, predates, you know, um, film and video and all those other ways of capturing these stories. <laughs> and and the djembe is a big brother actually of the cinema, and that was really something yeah. I learned that uh, the djembe was the big brother because the big brother is the one who tells stories, mm-hmm. and then out of his stories people can make films. But the one who precedes is the djembe. That was great to learn that, and right. to be reminded that also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really <laughs> great. You know, I was just also thinking as you were talking about um, you know the characters, um, you know that find themselves, you know, telling their, that find, I guess they find you for you to tell their stories. Um, you know, I was thinking the real heroes, you know, the people that um, that really make the world go around. I was thinking about the director, and I don't remember what his name is, but he did films like The Little Girl Who, um, what is he, The Little Girl Who Follows the Sun, um, and then he Yes, also, the, the little girl who sold the sun. Yeah, yeah sold that's the sun, right, yeah. Soleil, yes. That's the real job, Mambeti. 
And at the end of the film, there is one quote of from him also. Oh really? Oh which yes, one? because there, there are two there are two quotes at the end of the film, one by Sembene Usman and yeah. one by Jibril Diop Mambeti. You okay. know, when they were both alive, people used to have the tendency to oppose their approach to filmmaker, mm-hmm. saying that Sembene was more like the old school, very um, uh, traditional kind of filmmaking in a way. And that Jibril Job Mambeti was more the innovative, the artist. And and what I found really so impressive was that both of them considered, you know, the filmmaker as a griot. And that was really so interesting for me to point that out and to put it in the open. For Jibril Job Mambeti, a filmmaker is the visionary of the future, a, a visionary, you see, who projects... Uh, uh, into the future and anticipates uh, in some of the problems that the society will have to, anticipate, uh, to to face, and that's really so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, as a visionary, um, this is great because I wanted to ask you this question anyway. <laughs> what do you see? <laughs> uh, short term, long term? <laughs> uh, I... I uh... <laughs> that's I'm a very about hard question. Africa. <laughs> uh, for Africa, that's a very hard question. Yeah. Well, well it's a very, it's a very hard, it's a very hard question, really, because you know, no one, can, no one can predict what's going to happen. But at the same time, the way uh, life is changing, what happened in the U.S. in 2008, having a black president. Um, Oh, I mean, there are many things that are changing, and and we hope that change are really going to happen in this country, and that this change is going to affect the rest of the world and the way people view the African people, and that also our leaders are going to start taking some responsibility into uh, really putting the interest of their people before their own interest and before the interest of the corporations and the, the big corporations, uh, so that, you know, life becomes better for people all over the planet, and that we're not always stuck with this kind of stigma, saying with all these negative images, negative representations, and I think that, that's going to be one of the first changes. And also what I hope is that most of these in international institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, that people are, start, are going to start uh, challenging them so that they stop being a kind of, kind of colonial, post-colonial institution, and that they are going to become really institutions that allow people to really get by and, and, and find uh, the subsidies to develop projects in their own countries for the interest of the majority of the people and not developing projects for the interest of the corporations only. So that's, for me, what I'm really hoping will happen. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but if the promises of changes that have been said in the U.S. take place, maybe that's going to become a momentum that might affect uh, the rest of the planet. I hope so. So um, when you when you showed your film um, this film to your um, well let's first let's I'll ask that question in a second so could you talk about um, you know this this neighborhood this community that um, that that you 
discovered um, when you were, you know, you left the big, uh, I guess, conference um, festival and, and sort of went into the community. Could you talk about, because uh, the, uh, the cinematography there is just really lovely. Um, the colors are beautiful. The women look gorgeous in their, you know, in their African garb with the bright colors. Um, and, and this is supposed to be, I think you told me, this is one of the poorest countries in in, in the world. In the, in the world, I'm like, really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there were no starving, you know, children with their ribs showing. I mean, everybody looked like they had food, and people just they did they weren't rushing, rushing, rushing around and bustling. I mean, when um, you know the film club met, people had their you know whatever it cost to see the films, and everybody looked pretty happy. Yeah, could you talk about the community and maybe sort of. Define poverty for us. Well, if you go somewhere and you start looking for poverty, you will find it. Even uh, here in San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley, if you go specifically looking for places where you find poverty, you will find it. So when people set out to look for that, they will find it also. So this neighborhood is a poor neighborhood in Ouagadougou. People... Uh, live with very little. Uh, a day job of of Buba, he finally during the whole day after having shown three films, after, after having spent his whole day working, he ends up with a total amount of $7. And it's out of this $7 that he's going to pay also the electricity, pay uh, all the expenses, and, and that's really very, very little. And he also has to su- support his family. and So, and yet he's doing that, he's proud, he's holding his head high, straight, you know, and not really begging because... So when, when as I said, you know, poverty exists in, in Africa. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but you can only put an emphasis on that when you have desperate people, as you can put the emphasis on that everywhere on this planet. But if you start defining people just by that, that's when it becomes a problem. And fighting against the representation of Africa that have been going on for so long has been also one of the goals of African filmmakers, to show life the way it is. There are problems, but also people are living, people are living um, with little, but living. And uh, the poverty, the... Uh, crises that you see only on the newsreel are not the only images of of Africa. And having these young men who are speaking, who are very eloquent, who are talking in a with a language that is completely understandable, who are really managing their lives, that's also the image of Africa that exists. And of course, many NGOs don't send these images because it's going to affect their fundraising. But still. Uh, we see that Buba has needs. For instance, uh, his, his dream is to have his flat, flat television that he hasn't been able to buy because it costs so much. Two years ago when we were making the film, the, the flat screen TV was costing about $3,000. Mm-hmm. So for him, for a guy, he, for, for him making 7 or maximum $10 a day, how he will never be able to afford having his TV on his own. So when I was here, I went into a school, uh, and, you know, some 
some kids just started saying, oh, we need to, we want to give a little bit for, for Buba to help him buy his TV. And that day after my intervention in the class, uh, we received $30 for the television. And one, one student says he was going to continue and do more with his friends. And, and uh, I think that she's read more. I don't know how much she's read for, for this TV. We might leave San Francisco with at least $50 for, from this class and uh, maybe a little more uh, from after the screening. And gradually, Buba, by the end of this year, will have his uh, flat screen TV. And at least that will be an achievement, and I'll be very proud if I can help him have that. That would be really great. Yeah, that would be really super. Um, could you tell us um, how um, the um, the video club uh, manages uh, the video club operates because I, I I spoke to you when I spoke to you on Sunday I was asking you about um, how how he got you know how he got the films it looked like his supplier you know would bring in these DVDs and some were of you know okay quality and some weren't and some of the uh, the DVDs were um, of, of films made in the West and there were a few you know classics you know like Yaba. But uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, there weren't a lot of African films per se as a part of the um, selection. But but his audience was sophisticated, and they did like African cinema. And and you mentioned how mm-hmm. you know you show the film Sacred Places there. Uh, I sh- yes, I showed Sacred Places there. I showed also my previous film Chief there oh, while okay. I was shooting Sacred Places. Yes. Okay. I sh- I showed it there uh, when during the film I even showed. People reacting to to chief, yes, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that it would be difficult to show a documentary in a place like that, and I was really surprised to see that well, people just love the documentary even there. So, and they, when the a story uh, is a story, you know, where people are connected and they love the film, and and when you showed Sacred Places, it was even better because they could they, they knew everybody appearing in the film. There were clapping when they would say something nice and that was really and they were having reactions like wow Jules César wow you're such a philosopher we didn't even know that we see you every day so we didn't know you were a philosopher all these people were really very happy and and I had the feeling that people felt empowered to know that someone just like them could stand up and speak the way he was speaking mm-hmm. and also I think that is something that is important for democracy because in many places people have a tendency of thinking that if you haven't been to college, to universities, to you cannot, you are not worth anything. You cannot speak. You cannot speak of your mind. You, so for me, it was important to have them in the neighborhood. You know, just speak and say things and say things that in a way that uh, were so deep and so profound. And and yeah, for me, it was imp- important to to do that. And how did they get the films? That's really uh, very interesting because most of the films that are on the market in Africa are films that are made in Asia. Or, and, and, and these films, uh, I don't exactly know the origin, but they are in the market. So they go to the market and they buy these films uh, or they rent these films. And sometimes some of the films that are kung fu films, karate films, have been rented so often that the quality is bad and they don't want to keep showing them again. That's why they always have to check the DVDs and to see if the quality is still 
good. Uh, and and yet African films uh, are not popular enough to be uh, taken by uh, people who make these DVDs in Asia and so and also the states fight against piracy. So uh, people would not very easily pirate African films on the continent. So suddenly there are less African films available on the market and a young new generation of African uh, film goers are just going to grow up not seeing African films just like their parents when there were not so many African films available because most of the films on the market are these films that come blockbusters who come from Asia and 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 Hollywood and who are all over the place in the market so it's it's a problem it's a it's a problem and it's a paradox because today with a video camera people make films with very little money and these films can be uh, finished in a matter of a few weeks and put on the market but most of these filmmakers uh, who are doing films in video are dreaming to show their films only in big cinemas and are not taking into account the home video and this, this cine club industry and that's a shame you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah certainly is and so it was um it was really really great seeing um Idris Awadrago the yeah. filmmaker who, 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 who did the directed Yaba and who was saying mm-hmm. how he was touched by the fact that his film can be seen there. Yeah, it was really great what he said about about seeing his scenes in, in these places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there was another film I saw a while back, and I don't remember who the director was. I thought it was you, but maybe not. Um, it was a film that, yeah, it was your film, I think. It was a film where it talked about, yeah, it was about, it was about Cameroon and about how it had been colonized by all these different European nations that so I think it was Cameroon, and and so there are like all these languages spoken, these European languages spoken, depending on what region you're in. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then also I think in the same film, if this is the same film, I might be confusing French. You let me know um, that um, the books are not published there because people because the schools use books that are imported from Europe. That that was at that time, and when you when the film was done, was that your film? Oh yes, it was um uh Africa Je te plumerai. Yes. Africa yes. I will place you, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, I love that film. I got it from the library. We have it in our library here in Oakland. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's good. that's great. Yeah, that was my introduction to you. Yeah, and so <laughs> <laughs> that was long before I ever thought I'd ever meet you. And uh and yeah, Africa I will please you, yeah, and I was like, Wow, that is and so the kids will be reading about snow and there is no snow in Cameroon, but it's in the story, it's in the book. And, okay. and was, Yeah, and you were you you know, uh you interview people that were talking about how you know, there's you know, there's so many writers but they can't publish. Because mm-hmm. yeah, because no one buys books. Well, at that time, we're buying books by African, you know, authors published on an African press. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Has that changed any? Has it gotten better? No, things haven't changed. You know, unfortunately, things are are not really changing. No, that's uh, the paradox. You know, how can things change when you have the same people with the same mentality? Uh, <laughs> still in power. You know, when I did the scene, Bia was already in power, and today he's still in power. 
27 years he's he's been there so and not really wanting to change or not really wanting to do anything for his people so things haven't changed you know wow it's uh, it's the same situation unfortunately well, I want to thank you so much. We've been speaking to uh, director Jean Maritino and his film, Sacred Places. How do you say it in French? Lieu, lieu saint. And it was my pleasure talking to you, Wanda, and uh, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Oh, that would be super. So, <laughs> we should know a new film in the next year. We hope oh. to see you again. Oh, that would be super. What's the name of your new film? And what's it about? <laughs> oh, <laughs> For the moment, it doesn't have a name. The okay. film, the film is probably going to be the King and I, but it's going to change probably by that's a working title. It's oh. the relation to authority in Cameroon because we still have the local traditional authority versus versus the so-called modern authority, mm-hmm. and both oh. of them are, are coexisting in the society without really having defined uh, their own territory. So it's a big confusion. And uh, you have a king who is supposed to be the most important person on earth, and yet in the administrative circle, one man from his kingdom can be can hold a higher, 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 higher position than him in the administration. So it's really a confusing, very confusing system that we need to deal with, actually, at one point. Oh, that sounds, that sounds like a, a part two um, to chess. Yes, actually, yes, that's a... That is the the new king now is the one who who succeeded the king that you saw in Chef who passed away in 2003. Oh. So it's uh, the, yes, I'm I'm following, and the one who succeeded was not one of his children, but rather one of his brothers. And this brother had a PhD and was a, a researcher in one of his chemical uh, corporation in town, and he has to leave everything and return to the village to become king. This man was a monogamist for almost 20 years, 25 years. He had to come back to the kingdom and marry. Uh, now I think he, now he has seven wives and he has more than 20 or something children because we wanted to make sure that he will give birth to the next king. So he's uh, perpetuating the tradition of the kingdomship. And yet this man uh, is a intellectual who studied and who went to college, to university, and who is now the one who is going to be safeguarding the tradition. So this uh, paradox I'm trying to address and to see how really we can put these two things together in the contemporary Africa today. Oh, wow, that sounds really great. Well, we're we're looking forward to that, and I know we are going to be on... Your your tour schedule because you like coming to visit us. <laughs> oh, I would love to. Cool. Well, I hope the uh, the rest of you stay here. Are you going to be in town? Um, you know, the rest of, through the rest of this week. Um, are you going to be at the screening tomorrow at the Kabuki? Well, unfortunately not because I'm leaving tomorrow very early tomorrow morning. But I will be with my heart and the images with everybody in the screening, and uh, <laughs> I, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. What can I say? I have to leave tomorrow morning, and uh, and uh, yes. But um, let's hope that uh, uh, 
someone important on one of the television, whether it's ITVS and PBS, pick the film up so that people can see it again on television. That would be nice, wouldn't that it? That would be really great. Yeah, I hope that happens. That would be really super. Okay, and, and we'll we'll um put the word out about, you know, raising money for um for uh Cesar's um big screen television and um you know we'll I'll give them the information about how to, you know, I guess for your website, so they can, you know, send the donations to you, so you can you can purchase it for him, which would be okay, really nice. Okay, Because I know if he, nice. gets, cause if he gets the flash screen TV, then that means the whole community will be able to see the films on a, a much larger platform. Because oh yes, and and he, people will be coming from other neighborhood to come and see the new video club with his big flat television. Yeah, read something. <laughs> That would be really lovely. (laughs) Well, you have safe travels, and again, thank you so much for um, being on the show. Thank you very much, Wanda. Are you taking care? It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hello. Oh, hi. That was Jean-Marie Tino, and now we are joined by Rylan Nefera, um, who is going to be in town in a couple of weeks. Let me... uh, See, uh, Ra Nefera, um, Amen, uh, honorable, honorable, um, what does the DD stand for? Excuse me? What does the DD, the honorable? Oh, uh, Doctor in Divinity. Doctor in Divinity is best known for his consummate expertise in the metaphysical and spiritual sciences. He is the founder and leader of the Asara Set Society International, a Pan-African society rooted in the spiritual tradition of Kemet, ancient Egypt. He created the society in 1973 to provide its members with a social vehicle through which to live the comedic way of life, the Asarian religion. Ra'a Nefera Amin I established the Saraset Society on the kingship, queenship system of government with many divisional leaders, and there is um, an active uh, community here in the San Francisco Bay Area that is hosting um, Ra'a Nefera Amin's um, visit in a couple of weeks. In the 35 years of the society's existence, he has trained hundreds of priests and priestesses. Um, and we're going to be talking to him today uh, about a lot of things, but one is about this wonderful novel, Heru, the Resurrection. It is so good. Oh, my God. It's just awesome. Um, in the book, the story of the king, Asar, has been killed by his evil brother, Set. And with his death, God's greatest revelation for the salvation of mankind has been lost. Um, and uh, it's just, this is just such a wonderful book and such a wonderful love story. Um, and I didn't realize until I spoke to Marcus um, that that actually it's a metaphor and, and it's a metaphor about our lives and, and basically um, the things that you talk about in your other book, Ma'at, the seven, the eleven laws of God, are sort of, I guess, uh, personified in in the characters here. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so wow, it's just, um, <laughs> it's just really amazing. Um, uh, there, you know, like, um, you know, Asar dies and then he's brought back to life and. And then it's just it's just amazing. Um, tell us about you know the story and and the characters and um, and then I'll tell you about some of my favorite parts and you could maybe give. Okay, it a very good. <laughs> well, first of all, the different so-called uh, Egyptian gods. Mm-hmm. 
are really metaphors, a metaphor, you know, it's part of a metaphoric presentation of, you know, uh, the faculties of man's being, man's spirit. Mm-hmm. You see, meaning that, you know, that there are two basic forms of presenting information. We can present it prosaically, or we can, rep- or we, you know, or we can do it metaphorically. I mean, I'm sorry, we can do it, let's say, scientifically, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, a very cold and dry presentation, or we can explain, you know, the aspects of our beings through a story. Right. You know, um, Freud, for example, said that man is made up of the ego and the id and the alter ego, right? Mm-hmm. We could personify these three parts of man beings as, the, as three characters in a story, correct? Yes. You know, the id would be very emotional and animalistic getting us into getting the nation into all kind of troubles and the ego will be caught between the alter ego and the it, you know? Mm-hmm. And the alter ego of course will be, you know, uh those people who represent, you know, the highest values of society and things of that nature. Right. So we could present it as a myth, as a story. Mm-hmm. For the simple fact that a story presentation will will make it very descriptive, you know, will appeal to the to the part of the brain that understands, you know, the right side of the brain, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we remember 80% of what we see and only 20% of what we hear. So a story gives us a pictorial way of unifying all the parts of a, of a whole and gives us better understanding. So the ancient Egyptians, you know, explained, you know, man's, the, the, the aspects of man's spirituality in a story form. Because that's the best way to understand and connect, you know, the information regarding things within man's beings. Right. So our oh. spirit is composed of 11 different, you know, parts that were personified and woven into a story. You know, the Bible does the same thing. You know, we get the story of of Moses and mm-hmm. Jeremiah and these different people, and that's how the the, the biblical principles are illustrated in story form. You see, yeah. and so Osir and Oset, meaning you know, so-called Isis and Osiris and Heru or Horus or whatever, represents different parts of man's spirit. Mm-hmm. And once you understand it, once you make the correspondences of different parts of your spirit, your psychological makeup, mm-hmm. then now you will understand who you are, better understand, you know, how to uh, correct your psychological problems, and. Right. You know how to realize your your divinity. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow! Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know. But I didn't I didn't know that <laughs> when I was reading. It's like, oh, this is so good. And then and then when I went over, when I when Marcus showed me the uh, uh, Netter and he showed me the the images, like you know the um, the really cool um, friend to Queen Mother um, uh, was it Nephet? Um, who helped her escape from the prison? Mm-hmm. And he and he was he could change into a lion. Um, what's I don't remember his name. What was his Beth. name? Beth. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Beth. Right. Yeah, I liked him. He was really cool. He was the only one. In, oh wait. Um, well, I probably we probably need to go back a little bit. But he was the only one that drank didn't drink the wine because it didn't smell right. Which That's is kind correct. of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, 
it's just, I don't know, just the whole thing. I was, like, so shocked because, you know, it's the story starts where, you know, Queen Mother's just, she hasn't had any, they, her and her husband, they, had, they don't have any children yet. And she's been waiting, what, 13 years? He's been out um, sort of um, in, the, in the world community. Um, uh, you, could, you could maybe help me here. He Bring was out. Spir- spreading the spiritual teachings of ancient Egypt to other, right. other, other nations. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and also sort of, you know, creating uh, community with these other nations, too, mm-hmm. so that they would all get along well together because he was he was interested in peace and not war uh, as a, you know, like trying to develop peaceful strategies to for re- people to reconcile their differences rather than fighting. And so he didn't believe in war. That's correct. Yeah, which I thought was really neat. But his brother, um, I was so shocked that his brother said when, because um, there had been attempts on his wife's uh, life while he was away. And uh, and they had almost got her, I think maybe five or so attempts. And, and the last one was really, really close. So then um, her uh, her brother-in-law, Seth, says, you know, that he'll, you know, he'll, you know, step in to be over security and he was in cahoots with the other people. I'm like, oh my goodness, who is this person? <laughs> and then, so it was like, wow, it's it's like intrigue. I mean, it's like all the stuff that happens, you know, that we kind of like, you know, with regards to the soap operas and you know the political intrigue of, you know, of, of these aristocrats. <laughs> and and then you know the, the classic warfare between siblings, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, all story, of these characters it? represent, you know, different, you know, uh, dynamics within your spirit. You see, Osir mm-hmm. is the divine within you, and mm-hmm. Set, you know, the the evil brother, mm-hmm. is the evil within man. Uh-huh. You see that that plots against the divine within us. Mm-hmm. You see that, yeah. and so the story, you know, is really a novel uh, portrayal of, um, you know, the ancient Egyptian. Uh, spiritual, you know, fundamental spiritual teachings of of how is it that, you know, uh, the evil within us destroys our divinity, mm-hmm. you know, and how we can uh, recapture that divinity. We have to uh, resurrect. You see that? Oh. Our divinity. You see that? Mm-hmm. So evil is not really, you know, uh, yes, you know, the evil. It's not the evil out there. It's the evil within us. That once we conquer that evil within us and allow the spiritual, uh, the divine within us to to rise its fullest, that we will be able to be truly happy and successful in our life, and and intuit the wisdom and and get the divine power that will enable us to make you know uh, fundamental changes in our society. Mm-hmm. So the story is really a very entertaining, you know, uh, you know representation of a very deep spiritual teachings, which, you know, I cover in my Medina Chair Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, and my Level Laws of God, and so on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, this, this, uh, the novel, Heru of the Resurrection, is, is, is one of your, your latest um, books, and, you know, you're really prolific. You have, like, lots and lots of books. I mean, you have the, those classics. This one, you know, was, was um, uh, published in 2008, and but then you know you have the classes you know Meta Netter what is it one two and three yeah volume Meta Netter's in three volumes mm-hmm. right and I'm working on other volumes later on oh really oh my oh, yes. goodness 
<laughs> well, we cannot. We can Ancient Egypt is four thousand years, right? The oh, four, okay. it, it lasted for over four thousand years. Uh huh. And you cannot, you know, uh, explain, you know, ancient Egyptian spirituality in just a handful of books. You know, actually, it could fill a whole library. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how do you how do you know what you know? Uh no, you asked that the most difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh people who have you know you know, when I wrote my first book in nineteen seventy five, mm-hmm. a book called The Religion of Nothing New, mm-hmm. I had people who were, you know, like thirty three degree masons. You know, by the, back then I was only like in my early thirties, right? And I had old men in their fifties, sixties, and seventies who were thirty-three degree masons walk up to me and say, "You know, um, this book had this book come forty years earlier in my life, I would be so much, you know, better." And they were shocked, like, "Where did a young man like you were able to get some information?" Because they couldn't find what I what I say in my books in other books on Egyptian spirituality or Kabbalah or you know esoteric sciences. You know, and these are people who were initiated in the Masonic order, studied yoga and meditation for many, many decades. Well, you know, in ancient Egyptian teachings, there's a teaching that, you know, if you live a certain way and pass certain spiritual trials, you know, um, you know, when you, you die, you're able to, to preserve certain elements of your spirit, which you bring back with you the next time that you reincarnate, because you know it's a it's a society it's a spiritual system that believes in reincarnation. You with me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but the thing is that most of us, you know, lose do not preserve, you know, the memory or the skills from a, from our incarnation because we we fail certain spiritual trials. And if we pass them, then we, we the reward is that you're able to retain the memory of those spiritual lessons and bring them back with you in another incarnation. Mm-hmm. So what is in my book are things that I learned in a past life. Mm-hmm. And people right. and people go to my books, Medinature Volume One, Two, and Three, and they say, yes, you know, you know, I'm writing about things, topics that are in other books, but nobody explains it in that way. And and it's just not simply the way I explain it, because all my books are practical, you know, manuals, and the proof is in practicing the in, in, the, the information which works. You see that? Right. Mhm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you because um, Marcus again, because we we had some great conversations while I was waiting to talk to you about this. <laughs> he told me he told me that. You can control, I was asking, um, like you mentioned that sort of set just represents an aspect of of our soul journey and something that we need to master, you know, what he represents. And, And I was, so I think I asked him, so how many times do you have to, you know, I mean like reincarnate to get the lesson? And And I was wondering, my first question is, how many times have you been here before? And uh, and the second question is, um, is there something, is there a place or is there a kind of way that you could know sort of where, you know, like the path that you're you're supposed to take and, 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 and sort of get some guidance on how to get there? Oh, sure. In other so words, that you don't have to stumble around? Right. In other words, 
You know, um, in spiritual science, there is something called the tree of life. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible mentions the tree of life, and, you know, many esoteric traditions speak about the tree of life, which in, in the ancient Egyptian system we call the Paut Neteru. You see? Mm-hmm. And this, it's, it's a diagram composed of 11, you know, uh, symbols, and each each element symbolizes you know, uh, one of the faculties in the spirit that must be developed. And when they're fully developed, you know, they, they guide us to, to be successful in life, okay? And the complete development of all of them represents, you know, um, you know the culmination of man's spiritual, you know, evolution and growth. So the, it, it's not an issue of how many times must you incarnate or how long does it take, it's a question of knowing, okay, uh, you know, the different aspects of your spirit and how to develop them and how to work them. You see that? Okay. And there's a definite knowledge on how to do that, which is the subject of Midnight 1, 2, and 3, and my other books. Mm-hmm. So you, when, you, and, uh, when you study the material and you learn the tree of life or the Potnatero, you will know exactly all the different parts of your spirit that you must develop, mm-hmm. okay? And you yes. will get feedback. You will know, you know, when you are manifest, because the man- each part of your spirit will manifest a talent and psychic ability. Mm-hmm. And when you see that talent, you know, uh, coming, you know, working well, then you will know, okay, I'm de- I've developed that part of my spirit well. You see that? Okay. So there's definite knowledge to, to help you. Let, let's say you went to a gym, right? And the, the 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 guide, you know, the, the the personal trainer tells you, gives you a list of all the different muscles that you must work on: your biceps, your triceps, your lats, you know, your pectorals. So you have a list of all the different, you know, muscles and the different the, your the, your cardiovascular system, your aerobics, you know, and there's you know, and how many reps you should be able to do, right? So if, you fall, so if you have that picture, you will know exactly what to work on, and you will also know, be able to chart your progress and know when you have completed your goal. Are you with me? Yes. Well, spirituality is the same way. You see, the tree of life of the Potnateru, you know, gives you, it's a picture of the different parts of your spirit. And you you get to know, you know, how to develop, develop each part and, and what each part does so you can see that it is working. You see that? Mm-hmm. You see? For example, my sp- personal spiritual work enables me, if I have to deal with a very technical, scientific material, you know, um, I'm at home with that because I've awakened that part of my being. If I have to deal with something that, that, is, that requires artistic talent, I, I'm at home with that because that part of my being is also developed and working. You see that? Mm-hmm. If I have to be a follower, I know how to follow. If I have to lead, I know how to lead. You see that? Okay, uh, and so on. So each part of your spirit, you you know, there are these eleven parts of your spirit that you um, that you will know that the tree of life guides you, is your guide, is sort of gives you your curriculum, so to speak. Right. So, um, so have you awakened all the eleven parts of yourself? Oh, of course, yes. You know, oh. that's the only way I could write a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, well, I think you mentioned there are like 4,000 years of history, and so, you know, there there are going to be lots more volumes. So 
do you see your path? I mean, like, is it is it something that you could even see that, okay, um, like, for instance, August Wilson, uh, you know, wonderful playwright, he, you know, he set about to chronicle 100 years of African-American uh, history in a 10-play cycle, and when he finished his 10th play, he died. And so I'm wondering... <laughs> I want physically, you know, um, mm-hmm, left. Mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering, uh, do you see yourself, um, you know, sort of, I guess, documenting all of this history for us, uh, and and then when you finish, I mean, like, yeah, do you see yourself? I mean, which means you're going to be here for a long time. Well, Wanda, <laughs> uh, let me say to you, I I see myself um, uh-huh. uh, giving the world a an accurate and complete, you know, um, you know, explanation of how to work on their spirit okay. according to ancient Egyptian teachings, right? Mm-hmm. And after I've completed that, I'm going to uh, enjoy my life with my family and my friends <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> I'm not going to die. I'm going to enjoy myself for a while. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I um I want to let our audience know that I'm speaking to uh, Dr. Ra'un Nefer Amen. I shake him, shake him, and he's going to be here in the San Francisco Bay Area for the Kemet Fest 2009. At uh, it's going to be in two locations. It's going to be at the Oakland Public Conservatory, 1616 Franklin Street, uh, where um, our guest is going to be speaking about meditation, and that's on Friday, May 8th. Uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Registration is at 6.30. And then um, on Saturday, uh, he's going to be uh, at the ASA Academy and Community Science Center at 2811 Adeline Street in Oakland. And that's all day. That um, The registration is at 11.30, and the first lecture is at 12 noon, Comedic Astrology, and then the next is at 1.30, Tree of Life, Qigong, and the Theology of Ra. And then there's another um, uh, talk at 2.30, uh, Tall Profit Sharing Program and webna- Webinar Introduction, and that's free. And then um, 3.30 to 5.30, there's going to be some entertainment and African marketplace. And then at 6 p.m. is a keynote address, Comedic Spiritual Culture as a Key to Black Liberation. We'll talk about more of that in a bit. So, um, so that should all be really great. And the uh, information... Um, for tickets and things like that, you can call 510-536-5934 or 510-253-8120. And uh, I have one of your your songs, um, uh, Het, Het, Het Haru, mm-hmm. and, um, and I was going to try to play that, and I was wondering if you could introduce it first, and then we could talk more about it. Well, which one do you have? Uh, there are several I, um, of them. Oh, there's more than one Het Heru. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Well, then maybe we should play it first, and then and then is you'll it, know what I've got. Is it? Uh, did he give a title? No, no. Um, he just sent me that because he said this is the the cycle now. So, okay. so, um, so that's the title of that one. That's what he said. And then there's another one I've got is the chant. But I was going to play that later. Well, um, Het Heru is the part of our spirit, right? That um, that is the shaping factor. Is the part of a spirit that 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 is responsible for the artistic personality. 
you know, the, yeah, then there are some people that are very artistic, you know, very romantic. You know, they have a talent for art, for romance, for for being sociable, you know, harmonious, you know. Mm-hmm. And some some people don't have that, and they try to learn it from the outside. They read magazines and books, and it doesn't go too well because the ability to be artistic, romantic, sociable, to be charming, you know, comes from within. Right. And if you're not manifesting those abilities, it's not that you don't have it. It's it's in a latent, in a dormant state. Mm-hmm. You see that? Right. And so, therefore, with certain, um, there's a, there's a ancient Egypt, you know, and many African societies, you know, have you know this spiritual technology on how to awaken dormant personality abilities, qualities, mm-hmm. and you know, so the certain you know, oils, you know, essential oils, because odors and certain colors, you know, stimulate parts of our brain uh, to awaken these dormant abilities. And then there are certain uh, words that are not meaningful, but they're energy, you know, modalities. You know, we call them mantras or heckals that enable us to awaken these, you know, dormant personalities. So the heteru... Uh, CV that he sent you is a guided meditation chant that when you repeat that sound, I think it's probably Van Kling Soul, you repeat it over and over and over again, it will awaken you know, the ability to be romantic to be sociable, artistic charming, you know compromising, accommodating as opposed to being, let's say um, you know, co- you know um, combative, you know mm-hmm. and or cold or whatever Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, well, here we go. Thank you. See what is this going on? Breathing out slowly. 
Breathing out slowly. 
breathing in Breathing out Actually, it's a guided meditation, right? You, we, yeah. We, we guide your breathing. There's instruction on how to breathe. Just don't breathe in and out. Mm-hmm. There's a special instruction on how to breathe. And that rhythmic and correct deep abdominal breathing puts you into a you know altered state of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you need to be in a you know very introverted conscious state to awaken you know to work on your you know the Part of your your spiritual essences. You with me? Yes. If you're extroverted, you can't work on what's within. You have to go within to work on it. So that's what the breathing is for. And mm-hmm. then now the sound, van cling so. Those sounds you see are energy. Each sound is a different energy, and that combination of sounds awaken, you know, that behavior, that romantic, artistic, social behavior. And while the person is, you know. You know, breathing in rhythm to the music in a special way, and and repeating those words, van clean so them and in their minds, and wearing certain oils, essential oils like you know that corresponds to that personality, like rose or sandalwood or something like that, and mm-hmm. and also maybe taking in certain colors, green and yellows or pinks, you know, mm-hmm. you know. In other words, if you if there are drapes with those colors because colors affect our moods. You with me? Right. Yeah, that's true. And so on. So it's a, all of these things work together to induce and awaken a particular state of being within us. Mm-hmm. And the more you work on this, you know, with all the instructions, you will find that you will be able to awaken the ability to be artistic and romantic and, you know, fix your relationship, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, and um and I, I guess when you come in, um your first um lecture is going to be around this and, and it says in the uh description that it's going to include the uh Hetheru meditation and in parentheses it says Oshun and and I know that there um in the um the Yoruba tradition, you know, there there there's some uh corresponding uh, deities, like well, Oshun, Oshun, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, but then, deities are really aspects of people, of man's personality, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. If you if you call yourself an Oshun person, what you're saying is that you have your personality manifests. It's, it's an ex- expresses very strongly, mm-hmm. an artistic, romantic, sociable, you know, yeah, uh, harmonious nature. You know, you have that talent. Mm-hmm. So that's so Oshun is within you. You see that Shango is within you, mm-hmm. and Oshun is the same as Egyptian Heteru. Right. Of course, the Kemetic tradition might use a different approach, mm-hmm. like that 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 meditation that that we just got through playing that guided meditation, and certain oils and the you know the mantras, the hekas of that particular faculty. So different approaches to the same thing. You see that? Right. Yeah. Um, I was uh I was just thinking about about Heru and and how um you know he's you know when he meets his uncle he's 20 years old and he is just filled with rage about how his uncle robbed him of his father's presence you mm-hmm. know before he was born right. and 
and and then that whole you know he has to go meditate, which is really really cool. Um, that section. Um, I was but because to ha- ha- hatred will not help you. It's it's the inner peace. Mhm. You see that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and said there's nothing else but the evil within us mm-hmm. that destroys, you know, the divine within us. So yeah. we have to give birth to Shango. We have to give birth to Heru, the will. So lots of people they, they, they have a weak will, mm-hmm. or they have no will at all. You know, they just simply allow their emotions and their sensations to guide us. So you have to give birth to your to your will. And a will that is in service of the divine within you that has been destroyed by evil is a savior. You see that? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's what Heru is. Heru has to resurrect, you know, the divine within you. Mm-hmm. You see, but to do that, Heru, the will has to combat the evil, has to resist your emotions and being guided by your feelings. Because if you let your feelings and your, and your sense will and guide you, you're going to do wrong, right? Yes. Eat the wrong things, hook up with the wrong man, <laughs> <laughs> you know, do the wrong things, all you know, and so on. So you have to let wisdom and spirituality guide you. But you got to fight, you got to struggle with all that wrong conditioning within your spirit, which is what set represents. Right, yeah. Yeah, because um, out on the battlefield, um, you know, when Heru, you know, he has this huge, huge entourage of of military, you know, to, to help him defeat Set. And his army, and you know, when they face each other on the battlefield, you know that the the passion and the force of that energy feeds the opposition. And it's just great the way you you illustrate that, um, you know, illustrate that in your in the in the language of what it looks like on the battlefield. Um, yeah, it's like, and then he says it was horrendous. I'm reading on page 128. Hundreds of water buffaloes, lions, elephants, rhinoceros. Uh, elephants and, and Heru soldiers over a hundred thousand squirreled in the tornadoes initiated by Set's power. It was a route like no one had seen. Suddenly, about fifty of Set's soldiers were everywhere. Heru and Bess fought their way down the rampart and took flight through the town's narrow alleys, jumping over food stands, etc. So, um, it's you know, I was wondering like. Is he gonna? I, I, you know, because this is toward the end of the book, and you, your suspense is so cool. And I'm wondering, like, is he gonna get it? <laughs> I, I didn't know what was gonna happen to, you know, Heru, and I'm like, oh my God, is he gonna? What's gonna happen to him if he doesn't realize, you know, that he's gonna have to calm that stuff down? <laughs> Otherwise, it's gonna do him in. Right, because it, it is. You see, you if you respond with hatred. Even though for a just cause, you're, you're not really helping things. You see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, two evils don't make a right. So Heru has to find the inner peace within him, the divine within him. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yeah. And love, you know, peace and love to rise above the, the hatred and the, and the evil that is in the world, in, mm-hmm. embodied and set. And so the story, the, the, the resurrection, Heru the resurrection is really you know, a, a grand metaphor for man's spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And lots yeah. of people buy the book for their children. I tell them, you need to read this book yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. And then I just think about, you know, Heru, you know, we, when we, um, you know, when he has, you know, this challenge that if he makes the wrong, the wrong choice, it could mean his demise. But because he's his father's child and his mother's child, he makes 
the right choice, and then he has guidance. You know, um, Bess is a great guide, and Tahuti is a great guide. And it's interesting, you know, how Tahuti comes on the scene. Uh, could you talk about Tahuti and his role? Because he seems like sort of like he just sort of drops the wisdom and he just steps back. Like, you, know. <laughs> <laughs> you got it right. You got it. You're very, you know, perceptive. Well, Tahuti is the faculty within us which God speaks to us. Oh. See that? And God yeah. doesn't. Yeah, God doesn't, you know, God talks to us and you know when when we are right. Yes. You know God is not is not God's not going to chase after you. Mhm. And God is not going to condemn the evil doer. God is going to guide you when you're ready. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's up to you now to 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 use that, you know, insight, that intuition from God. You see, uh, because God doesn't take sides. You see that? God establishes okay. law and what is right, but we have to choose. You see that? We are the one that have to make it right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why, because God doesn't strike down the evil person, you know? Right. Or, you know, you have to choose between what is right and what is wrong, and that's how, you know, in other words, your salvation is already there. So Tehute just simply drops pearls with them here and there, and that's where life is, right? In other words, you know, the truth is for you to learn it, mm-hmm. you know, but the truth is not, like, always in your face. You know, you have to go to the truth. It's not going to pursue you, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, like, for instance, uh, when his mother, you know, got the uh, the warning and he she was supposed to pass it on to Asar, but she hadn't seen him in 13 years. It's like, oh, man, he speaks in such riddles. Why can't he just tell me straight out what he means? And then... She doesn't tell him, and then, you know, he gets killed by his brother. And then, she, but then she tries to tell him, but she doesn't remember the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's almost like everything's sort of coming full circle. Yeah, well, what's up is the emotional part of man's being, you know? Oh. And okay. the emotional emotion, emotion, money, meaning energy, power. You see that? Okay. And and um, and and if we cultivate our emotions, the right kind of emotion, especially love and sacrifice, then we can arouse a spiritual power for for good and for success. But at the same time, the emotional part of one's being is what keeps you from heeding, you know, uh, wise counsel. So you know, in other words, in in, in a in a novel, in a story, you know, you can't make. The bad guy, bad through and through, and the good guys, good through and through. They all have their weaknesses, you know, their good points and the bad points. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. You see that? So she's she's great, but she has her weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it all comes out right for her, and that's what life is about. You see that? Ah, so that's not just in the storybook. It's for real? Well, like the story is a metaphor end? for what's going on in man's life. You see that? Okay, yes. You see that? You, you can watch, let's say, the the, the Chronicles of Narnia or whatever, mm-hmm. and you might say, well, uh, not too much of it is my life, you know? Mm-hmm. But in this story here, this the Heruda Resurrection is based on an Egyptian, you know, older story, the story of Oset and Oset. You see that? Yes. Mm-hmm. And other sto- Egyptian stories that I've put together into one novel to give people an understanding of, you know, their life journey. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, if you look at this, go through the story as a model, a prototype for what's happening in your life, you'll find that you're going through the same spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. You see that there's a, there's a divine within you that is like dead or slumbering, right? Yes. 
Yes. And there's a, there's a part of you who wants to, you know, who's who's yearning, you know, for for good life, you know, for a peaceful life, and that's all set within you. But she has to give birth to a child, meaning a warrior, meaning the will that's going to fight for what is right and wrong within you, for what is right within you. You see, the, the evil set is within you, you know, uh, the, the things that make you do all the contrary things, you know, the wrong things against yourself and against others, and and you got to, you know, you got to fight against it. You have to develop the will. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yeah. And so so, this, so there are all of these different sub-elements that enriches the story, you know, and mm-hmm. serves yeah. as a guide for <laughs> what's happening in your life. Mm-hmm, certainly, certainly. And so I was, I was, you know, um, I was thinking about Heru and and what a great, you know, metaphor he is for for the youth. Um, you know, because he was, you know, he was almost. I mean, that rage that burned inside of him, it was almost as if he it was he was born with it. Um, you know, just from, I guess maybe being, you know, like he says. Um, Tahuti says, you know, that um you know, that he's his his uh <laughs> his mother's son because um, you know, he's speaking of seeking powers you have done nothing to earn and he's talking about, you know, when she wants to do the uh, ceremony of opening the mouth mm-hmm. you know, for her, her um deceased husband. Um and I don't remember why she wanted to do that, but they uh but Tahuti says, Well, you know, you didn't study this. I mean, you don't know like if you Unleash all this this power, you won't you don't have the the skills to be able to handle it. And so anyway, so he wants to you know do something with the sword, I believe, and and he doesn't you know know enough yet to be able to handle that. So I was just thinking about young people and how um, what Heru eventually does, you know, because he is open to guidance and and he does reflect, he meditates. Um, and he he um, you know then through that meditation he gets he he gets clarity. This this you know this particular metaphor is one that our young people would really gain from. Sure, in other words, yeah. you, you're young and you think you can do it all, you know. Yeah. And but you have to pay your dues. You have to uh, study and develop yourself. You just can't you know um, avail yourself straightforward. Uh, of the spiritual wisdom, you have to take your time and pay your dues before you can use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also I'm thinking also of of you know sort of the way. Um, I mean, if there's no no bad and no good, just sort of you know what you do with, you know what your what choice you make and what you do with when you're presented with these these two these this particular situation, you know, um, like how do you handle it. But I'm just thinking about, you know, okay, we've got young people that can't find jobs, you know. A lot of them have to go to these schools that where the teachers fear them or they're just persecuted, and a lot of them are enraged. And so mm-hmm. what do you do with that? And so, mm-hmm. so you know, so that's the one how I saw Hey Ru is like being, you know, enraged, and then and then he comes upon Seth, who is like the world, <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like, and and you know, and the more he, you know, tries to to do him away, the more power he gives him. So I'm thinking, wow, if you know, if if young people could be given, you know, like they could read the book and we could talk about it, then they could see how, you know, when you have peace and when you have love, then that deflates the battle. There you go. You got yeah. it, Wanda. <laughs> yeah, that is, that, this is like a, I love this book. It's so cool. <laughs> I'm glad you do. 
And I'm so happy we're going to talk again because we didn't get a chance to talk at all about Comedic spiritual culture as a key to black liberation. Um, but I had a couple more questions um, from the novel, um, uh, sort of like what things represent, and um, and so um, so he so you got this er is that how is that how you pronounce it? Who? Uh, you are. Oh, er, uh huh, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting how how these these uh, these entities. Because they're not human, um, you know, but they're aspects of us. Um, how they have like these, these, you know, like he. I think he's a hawk, right? But he's also he has a human form. He has, and as an animal form, he is what he's a bird, right? A hawk, you're right. That's correct. A hawk, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was wondering um, if um, if you could talk about um, sort of how these. Um, Deities, they also have their have an animal form, or or some of them actually have a human form. Sort of, how how is how do they decide? How do they like? How did he become the hawk? And then how does how how come Bess is is a lion and um, and Heru is what is Heru's? Um, Heru is also a hawk, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah uh huh. Yeah. So, in other words, it's, it's, it's you know, it's go back to our pedestrian metaphors, right? Hawkish behavior. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, alpha type males, you know, alpha type people, very hawkish. Okay. You know, uh in their pursuit of things, you know. Yeah. Not laid back, they're going to pursue something, you know, in an aggressive manner, in a, you know, combative manner and so on. You know, they have the talent, the drive, the urge, the skills for that type of, you know, expression. Mhm. You see, and of course, best, you know, he's is he's, he's He's a feline type personality, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a lion, but also he's sometimes a cat, playful and so on, you know. But when he needs to be, he can be quite a lion, right? You yeah. know. So these are metaphors, you know. But a, a lot of our personality can be explained quite accurately through, you know, animal metaphors. You know, um, mm-hmm. some people call other dogs and, and serpents <laughs> or chicken. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. you might think that, you know, uh, we're talking about the God that somebody worships, but we're talking about a metaphoric, ex- you know, way of describing a particular behavior type, mm-hmm. which yeah. is quite scientific when you really understand it because it conveys to the mind a clear image of how that inner, you know, force, you know, makes us to behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what is set? Well, what what animal does, um, does well it's very interesting that um you know the 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 animal that is used to represent set in the egyptian uh hieroglyphic system right uh-huh. is no known animal oh because okay. it represents all types of animalistic behavior that should not wow. guide you you see that wow so you know the all the, the ancient Egyptians did not want you to fix your attention on one animal or one animalistic behavior, mm-hmm. but all of them, all the negative animalistic behaviors. Mm-hmm. That's why the animal that's set, hieroglyphic, the hieroglyph, mm-hmm. that animal for set, is no known animal. Right, yeah. And then Sebek, who was like playing, you know, he wanted Set's favor, and so he got rid of the... Um, the wizard, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Wachetem. 
Just watch his hand. Yeah, that was cool the way watch his hand just like vanished. <laughs> that was cool. And then well, and he, he then, shows up. He shows up again in in in, in book two. Ah, okay. And plays a major role in book three of Heru the Resurrection. Oh, there are more. Oh, it's where, a trilogy. Oh, where are they? Are they? Oh, out? they're coming. <laughs> when? When? When are we gonna get? Oh, I want soon, to soon, soon. <laughs> like this year? Oh no, I have another project I'm working on right now. Oh man, we gotta wait. How long? Okay, maybe a year. <laughs> another year? You mean like next year in the spring? Yeah, yeah, next year, next spring. Are you gonna publish like two and three at the same time? <laughs> no, 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 because I have another major novel that I gotta put out first. You have another novel? Yeah. Oh, cool. Is that coming out this year? That's coming out this year. That's right. Oh, super. With a whole a whole new story, not a continuation of this particular one? No, a whole new story, and it's a major, major, major um, drama. Oh, wow. You know, uh, it's going to be, it's called, well, I'm not going to give you a title yet because it's okay. itself is worth a million dollars, a hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but needless to say, it's going to give, you know, black women, especially black actresses, mm-hmm. you know, uh, huge roles to play. Dramatic wow. roles to play. Nice. Oh, so you're actually going to um, you you see a film in Heru the Resurrection. Oh, right now we are scouting. We've spoken to you know several directors and producers, and mm-hmm. we have a few people who are interested. But you know Hollywood is, is broke right now because of the economic situation. Yes. And the Bernie Madoff, you know, uh, Ponzi scheme thing. So people who are interested, they say, "Well, if you can, if you can find somebody with the money, we, we want to do it." <laughs> <laughs> if you know somebody with money out there, let us know. <laughs> oh yeah, certainly, certainly. Oh yeah, because definitely is cinematic, uh, epic of epic proportions. I mean, yeah. Like unfortunately, those... it comes in at about 125 million dollars minimum to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the right. hold up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, so back to um, Sebek, what what animal is he? Well, he has two jackals, right? Oh, right, 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 yeah, they're always laughing. Yeah, right, <laughs> and, and jackals, you know, are very clever. Yeah. Very, very clever. So, so that stands, that's the animalistic metaphor for cleverness, you know? Oh, okay. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then the, um, how do you pronounce the uh, the wizard's name again? Wachetan. Wachetan, yeah, what about Wachetan? Well, no, he he's just all human, you know, but he's quite a wizard, and people, a lot of people love love his character, <laughs> you know, because he's quite pivotal in the yeah. story. Yeah, he is. He yeah, is. he's a wizard, mm-hmm. you know, a negative one, you know, without any morals and ethics. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I just and, love the way uh, he... And we know no animal like that, so we just kept him human. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> human animal. <laughs> right. Well, that's cool. Yeah, we're speaking to uh, <laughs> Dr. Ra'un Nefer Amin, who's going to be in town for the Comet Fest 2009. And you can call area code 510-536-5934 or 510-253-8120 to find out about the program on Friday, May 8th at the Oakland Public Conservatory, 1660 Franklin Street, or the all-day uh, uh, event at uh, ASA Academy Academy and Community Science Center, 2111 Adeline Street in Oakland. And that's Saturday, May 9th, all day. Uh, Registration is 1130, so 12 noon 
to uh, 6 p.m. and then afterwards because the final keynote address is at 6 p.m., so probably like um, 11.30 to around 8, 9 o'clock. So it's going to be a full day, but it sounds like it's going to really be a cool weekend. <laughs> so um, thank you so much. I want to um, thank you. For joining us today, and I think we're going to have another talk a little closer to the event, uh, you know, when um, right before you come to town. I'd be delighted. And, yeah, and then we could talk about Comedic spiritual culture as a key to black liberation, but I had to talk to you about Hey the Reservation because that is a fabulous, fabulous book and a fabulous story and metaphor for our lives. And now I'm going to read it again now that I know a little bit more. Very good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and I'm going to have to read your other books. Okay, are you are you in the Bay Area also? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Oakland. Okay, so I'm looking forward to meet you when I come when I come down. Oh, you've met me before. Well, yeah, I'll reintroduce myself to you. Okay, very good. All right, you take a care. Thank you so much. We're going to okay. go out with the uh, the chant. Um, I'm trying to think. I think it might be uploaded now. Let me check because I was trying to upload it as uh, as we uh, we spoke. And um, let's see. I'll tell you the name of it. It's a uh, it's a Haru chant. And so I'm going to play that. Um, close the show out with that. So, did you want to tell us something about that before I play it? This is the Heru or Heru? Heru chant. Heru. Okay, that's that's a, a mantra, a guided meditation to awaken uh, the will. Okay. You know, one wants uh, one's uh, ability and inclination to fight against what's evil within our spirit, within what's the evil in our mind, meaning set. Okay. Alrighty. Let me. Um, <clears throat> Just so I can see it, and um, I know people can um, can get these uh, on the. Uh, they'll be able to purchase them also. Oh, definitely, most definitely, for yeah. sure. Oh darn! I'm not going to be able to play it because my uh, switchboard just went out. So darn! We'll have to play it next time. Okay then. <laughs> All right, you take a care. Have a great okay. day, and I look forward to seeing you when you come to town. Okay, thank you so much. Sure. Peace and blessings. Peace and blessings.